Inflation took a breather last month. It slowed for the first time since August. President Biden says inflation is still unacceptably high and said bringing it down is his top economic priority. Our story is coming up on this Wednesday, May 11th. You're listening to WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, the largest wildfire in the U.S. continues to spread through the mountains of New Mexico. This is unimaginable. It is beyond belief. It's uh, something that I've never seen before. It's basically a monster. Tens of thousands of people are under evacuation orders. SpaceX plans to launch rockets near Brownsville, Texas, seven years after the company broke ground. Some residents say the only thing skyrocketing is housing prices. And what's causing the acute baby formula shortage in the U.S.? Retailers are reporting they cannot keep their shelves stocked. It's 401. News headlines are next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. Senate Democrats are spearheading a vote to enshrine abortion access in federal law, but they're not expected to get enough votes to overcome a filibuster from Republicans who overwhelmingly oppose abortion rights. Still, the Democratic leadership said it wanted lawmakers to go on the record about where they stand. Here's Democrat Patty Murray of Washington. Not only is the right to abortion at risk, but other important rights are as well. Today's vote in the Senate is a result of a draft opinion recently leaked out of the Supreme Court that suggested the conservative majority was poised to overturn Roe v. Wade. We have this from a Republican John Cornyn of Texas. This isn't the Woman's Health Protection Act. It's the Abortion on Demand Act. A final Supreme Court ruling is expected in June. Inflation remains stubbornly high. New data out today show consumer prices are up 8.3 percent from a year ago. NPR's David Gurr reports inflation did ease a tad from the previous month, but it's still taking a toll. Annual inflation remains at its highest in nearly 40 years. What's more worrisome for lower-income households is that the cost of basic necessities such as shelter and food continues to go up, even though gasoline prices came down slightly in April. That's proving to be painful for many households. Compounding the pain, according to today's CPI report, wages are not rising fast enough to keep up with inflation. Last week, the Federal Reserve raised interest rates by half a percentage point and signaled more hikes are on the way. And investors are worried those actions to fight inflation could tip the economy into a recession. David Gura, NPR News, New York. The Biden administration's condemning a deadly attack on a Palestinian-American reporter who was killed while covering an Israeli raid. The Al Jazeera journalist was fatally shot. Her colleague was wounded. NPR's Michelle Kellerman reports the U.S. is urging Israel to conduct an open investigation. State Department spokesperson Ned Price calls the death of veteran journalist Shireen Abu Akleh an affront to media freedom. The U.S. ambassador to the U.N., Linda Thomas-Greenfield, says the Al Jazeera reporter was widely respected. So I know that she will be uh, sadly missed uh, by all of us, and uh, we have to ensure uh, that uh, we get to the bottom of her, of her killing. Israel says it's possible that Palestinian gunmen killed her and wounded the Al Jazeera producer she was with, but her colleagues say she was shot by Israeli troops. Ambassador Thomas Greenfield says the U.S. places a high priority on the protection of American citizens and the protection of journalists. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, Washington. Ukraine's top prosecutor says the government plans to hold its first war crimes trial of a Russian soldier since the start of the invasion. Irina Venediktova said today her office has charged a 20 one-year-old Russian prisoner 
with the February death of an unarmed elderly civilian. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Members of the Massachusetts All-Democratic Congressional Delegation are calling on the Senate to pass a bill to codify abortion rights today. It's not expected to pass because Democrats don't have enough votes to overcome a Republican filibuster. Congresswoman Catherine Clark says Republicans are trying to control women's bodies. Congresswoman Lori Trahan says if the Supreme Court overturns Roe versus Wade, women would be relegated to second-class citizens. Boston is facing rising costs for its fleet of city-owned vehicles. That is, prices for gas and diesel have hit record highs in Massachusetts. WBR's Vanessa Ochovillo reports. The city says it's paying more than double what it did last year for diesel and 60 percent more for gasoline. But Department of Public Works Director of Fleet Management Bill Coughlin says it helps that the city's been transitioning its vehicles to electric and hybrid models. We, the city, trying to be as clean as possible, are going electric on as many pieces of equipment as possible. He says the city now has 39 active electric vehicles in its fleet, with another 11 coming online soon. And the city is replacing big diesel equipment like street sweepers with electric. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Vanessa Ochevillo. A man who was found floating off the coast of Rhode Island is pleaded not guilty to killing his mother at sea. 28-year-old Nathan Carmen of Vermont made his initial appearance in federal court today. In 2016, he was found on a raft after the boat he and his mother were on sank. Federal prosecutors say he killed Linda Carmen so he could inherit the family's estate. Traffic delays are starting to ease up now after a tough afternoon on 93 South leaving Boston. A crash involving several vehicles closed multiple lanes near the exit for Route 3A in Dorchester for nearly two hours this afternoon. All lanes reopened at 3.30. There are residual delays, though, of roughly 15 minutes on top of the typical afternoon congestion. In the forecast, cloudy skies for the remainder of the afternoon and for overnight tonight. Temperatures right about 50 tonight. Tomorrow should be cloudy again, milder, climbing to the upper 60s. Friday, sun should break through the clouds. Temperatures could make it to the low 70s, could reach 80 degrees on Saturday. 59 degrees now in Boston at 406. WBUR supporters include Progressive Insurance with its Name Your Price tool, a way to see coverage options based on a driver's budget. Learn more at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. Price and coverage match limited by state law. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Adrian Florido. The worst of inflation may be behind us, but what's still ahead is not looking a whole lot better. Price hikes in April were slightly smaller than the month before, but the cost of essentials like food and rent is still climbing at an alarming rate. NPR's Scott Horsley joins us now. Hi, Scott. Hi, Adrian. Scott, annual inflation in April was not quite as high as it was in March. Uh, Tell us more about what we learned today. We learned that we may have crested the peak of inflation, but that it's a long way down to get back to the stable prices we were used to before the pandemic. Uh, Consumer prices in April were 8.3% higher than a year ago. That's just a shade below the 8.5% inflation rate the month before. And oddly enough, gasoline accounts for some of that decline. Gas prices, which you remember soared in March after Russia invaded Ukraine, actually dipped a bit last month. Unfortunately, that April reprieve at the gas pump didn't last. Gas prices have since rebounded, and right now they're hitting record highs. Yeah. You've been talking with people who uh, have been coping with these high prices. What did they tell you? 
Yeah, I talked with Holly McLean in Rockland, Maine. She has four kids, and her husband works as a landscaper in the summertime and clears snow in the winter. McLean is really feeling the squeeze of these rising prices, even if last month's inflation rate was a little bit lower. I don't think it's getting any better. A gallon of milk used to be three seventy-five, and now it's four ninety. So, I mean, everything's gone up. McLean's kids go through a lot of milk. Her electric bill has also gone up to almost two hundred dollars a month, and she's noticed that rebound in gasoline prices to four fifty-four a gallon. I can tell you, it cost me over a hundred dollars to fill my tank the other day. We're a six person family and my husband is the only one working so money's tight. Even if you take out food and energy costs which tend to go up and down a lot the price of everything else in April was up more than six percent three times as high as inflation ought to be. What really worries Tanya Byron in Jacksonville Florida is rising rent. It's pretty depressing. I make $42,000 a year and I can barely afford a one-bedroom apartment. Byron spoke to me from her tiny dining room, which also serves as her office as a travel agent. Byron says the apartment's a throwback to another period in American history when inflation was painfully high. It was built in 1976 and they have not updated anything. That's got the original floors in the kitchens and the bathrooms, the original appliances, the original cabinets, the doors and the and the baseboards are painted brown. It's clean, but it's very basic. Apartment rents in Jacksonville have jumped 23% this year. Byron had hoped to buy a condo by now, but with home prices and mortgage rates also soaring, that seems out of reach. I am genuinely worried about the future, not so much even for myself, but for the people that make less money than I do. What is going to happen to the people making 15 and $18 an hour and the single mothers and people who have mouths to feed? It's very scary to me. High inflation is particularly tough on families who don't have a lot of money to start with. Economist Dan Sickle of Wellesley College says those families tend to have less discretionary spending to cut back on. Typically, food and gasoline and housing are a bigger share of total spending for lower-income households than for higher-income households. What's more, Sickle says, lower-income families typically pay more even for the same goods. They might live farther from suburban warehouse stores and have less flexibility about where and when to shop. Lower-income households might have more limitations on transportation, might have less of an ability to stock up when a particular item is on sale, maybe can't get the giant package of toilet paper to stash in a basement. Sickle chaired an advisory committee that says the government should try to include those differences in its cost-of-living calculations. That might mean reporting different inflation rates for people at different levels of income. The committee also suggests the government update how much weight it gives to different prices more frequently to account for the kinds of changes we've seen in consumer behavior during the pandemic. Early on, for example, people started buying more groceries and fewer restaurant meals. It was hoped that inflation might cool off once people's consumption patterns return to normal, but it may just be that inflation migrates from one class of purchases to another. The Federal Reserve has started to crack down on inflation by raising interest rates in an effort to discourage consumption. Chris Waller, who sits on the Fed's Board of Governors, thinks the economy is strong enough to withstand those rate hikes without a big jump in unemployment. 
But Waller acknowledged there are no guarantees. Inflation is a tax that everybody pays. Unemployment is a tax a fraction of the population pays. So it really is this kind of touchy problem. We're trying to lower the inflation tax on everybody, but there's a small section of the society that may bear the brunt of that by losing their jobs. There's no magical formula in a textbook that tells you how to do it, Waller said this week. You kind of have to take your chances and see where it goes. So, Scott, where do forecasters think inflation will go from here? It may well be that the 8.5% inflation rate we saw in March was the high watermark and that price increases will gradually slow down from here on out. We are starting to see a drop in the price of some goods, like used cars, for example, which were a big driver of inflation last year. On the other hand, we're also seeing a jump in the price of some services. Airline tickets, for example, saw a big spike in prices last month, and that might continue this summer as people are traveling more, especially if airline fuel costs stay high. So, Adrian, it looks like the trail down from peak inflation could be long and bumpy. That's NPR's Scott Horsley. Scott, thank you. You're welcome. Reactions are coming in from around the Mideast over the killing of a well-known Palestinian-American journalist. Shireen Abu Akleh was shot as she went to report on Israeli troops conducting a raid. Now, the question of who killed Abu Akleh and wounded one of her colleagues is still disputed, but her fame and her ties to the U.S. have put her death in the spotlight. For more, we're joined now by NPR's Daniel Estrin in Tel Aviv. Hi, Daniel. Hi, Elsa. So we'll talk about the circumstances of her death in a moment, but can you just first tell us a little more about who Shireen Abu Akleh was? Yeah, she was a veteran television journalist. She was 51 years old, uh, but she became a journalist when she was in her 20s. She joined Al Jazeera, the Arabic network, in the late 1990s, and she became very well known in the Second Intifada and the, the Palestinian uprising of the early 2000s. She was seen all across the Arabic-speaking world on television. Palestinians especially watched her. And uh, I want to play you a clip from an Al Jazeera video tribute in Arabic where she spoke about why she chose journalism. She says, I chose journalism to be close to people. It might not be easy to change the reality, but at least I could bring their voice to the world. Hmm. Well, I know that you've been personally talking to some of the people who have been impacted by her work, her journalism. What have they been saying about her death? She was really a household name here for Palestinians. I, I ran into one man uh, today in Jerusalem, Izzedine Bukhari. He's in his late 30s. He grew up watching her on television report from very violent scenes in the West Bank. Uh, let's listen. That to see her in all these uh, places uh, very close to death, uh, but I never imagined to wake up to a news such as today that uh, she is the one that they are making a report about her. And she was also really well known by her colleagues, uh, journalists here. One colleague said she was a role model for young women who would even uh, imitate her sign off while they would Mm. stand in front of the mirror. Hmm. So what do we know so far about how she was killed? Well, she was killed while covering an Israeli arrest raid in the occupied West Bank in the Janin refugee camp. Um, The context here is that since March, there have been several Palestinian attacks in Israel, killing at least 19 people. 
There's been a series of Israeli raids, arrest raids in the occupied West Bank that have killed around 30 Palestinians. And Abu Akhle was uh, at the scene of one of those raids early this morning uh, to cover it. We spoke with her colleague, Ali Samoudi. Uh, he was with her when they walked past Israeli soldiers. They were wearing flak jackets, clearly marked with the word press in English, uh, with their helmets. He said they walked meters away from the, the soldiers, past the soldiers who let them pass, and then mm -hmm. there were gunshots. He was shot in the back. She was shot in the head. Uh, Al Jazeera says it was an Israeli sniper. A Palestinian autopsy uh, says that a recovered bullet uh, was found. Uh, a doctor I spoke to said it was a kind of bullet that Palestinians don't have pointing at Israel. Now, Israel's position on this has actually evolved. Um, at first, Israel said it was likely Palestinian gunmen were the ones who, who shot her during a firefight with Israeli soldiers. That message shifted a little bit. And the army is now saying it's hard to know who shot her. Israel wants the Palestinians to hand over her body or the bullet or both. Well, we mentioned that this story is getting a lot of attention. Can you talk about like how her death is reverberating not only across the region but beyond right now? Well, it's it's reverberating at the highest levels of power in the United States. Uh, the ambassador to the UN, Linda Thomas Greenfield, actually met this journalist in November when she was here in the region, and the ambassador said she's uh, deeply saddened, and, and the U.S. Uh, is calling for a swift probe. An Israeli human rights group has even challenged an official Israeli account uh, of, of the firefight that went on there between Palestinian gunmen and Israeli soldiers. Uh, the Israelis pr provided a video. Uh, this Israeli human rights group geolocated it, said it was far away from where the journalist was. But today there were multiple processions with Shireen Abu Akhla's body in multiple cities in the West Bank. Tomorrow the Palestinian Authority president will preside over a ceremony and her funeral will be on Friday. That is NPR's Daniel Estrin in Tel Aviv. Thank you, Daniel. You're welcome. listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Coming up, the CDC says drug overdose deaths last year killed more than 107,000 people. That's a 15% rise over the year before. Checking business, a top executive at Cambridge-based Moderna is out after only about a day on the job. The vaccine maker said today it has fired Chief Financial Officer Jorge Gomez. Moderna says it just learned that the company Gomez used to work for is investigating allegations against him of improper financial reporting. Gomez will receive a $700,000 severance package. Moderna's previous CFO will come out of retirement while the company looks for a replacement. Wall Street was down today. The numbers are coming up next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Arts Emerson, presenting Seasick. Science journalist Alana Mitchell's one-woman mission to find hope in the face of climate change. May 11th to 22nd, at the Paramount. And Margulies Peruzzi, providing insight on the practical steps needed to prepare for a safe return to the workplace. Information and reports on MPArchitectsBoston.com. Wall Street stocks ended on a downslide. The Dow fell 1%, 327 points, to close at 31,834. S&P dropped 1.65% to finish at 39.35. The Nasdaq sank 3 and 2 tenths percent to close at 11,364. All the details coming up tonight on Marketplace, which starts at 6.30.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, sponsor of Growing Healthy Futures with Greater Boston Food Bank, mathworks.com gbfb, and the Jennifer and Robert Waldron Civic Fund, supporting education, equity, and truth. I'm Scott Simon. Are you thinking about trading in your car? Why not donate it to this station instead? We'll turn it into the programs you love. Just go to WBUR.org. Partly cloudy tonight, falling to just about 50. Tomorrow, still cloudy, a lot milder, inching to 69. Then Friday, partly sunny, about 72. Then a summer-like weekend could hit 80 Saturday and Sunday. 59 degrees now in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Alzheimer's Association, dedicated to the advancement of Alzheimer's research. At any given moment, research, discovery, and learning are happening. Learn more at alz.org. And from Indeed, committed to helping businesses streamline the hiring process, Indeed works to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates in one place. More at indeed.com NPR. And from the Lemelson Foundation. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Adrian Florido. And I'm Elsa Chang. One of the most expensive and bitter Democratic primaries in the country is taking place in a newly drawn district in a blue-leaning pocket of Oregon. The race features party infighting, mysterious ties to cryptocurrency, and a complaint with the Federal Election Commission. Next week, voters will pick from a crowded field of nine candidates. They're spending more than $18 million to get into the general election. NPR congressional correspondent Claudia Grisales has more. House Democratic candidate Carrick Flynn is a virtual unknown, drawing millions of dollars in curious political donations. The 35-year-old Oregonian laughs off rumors he was bought by a shadowy puppet master a fun story, right? It's like, oh, here's this like secret thing that's happening. They're buying a congressman. Flynn also laughingly described a recent tweet illustrating him as the Manchurian candidate to the Oregon Bridge podcast. Sam's head on it and it had like my, you know, this like thing and like, oh, he's a Manchurian candidate. It's like, it's hilarious. Sam's head in that illustration refers to Sam Bankman-Fried, a 30-year-old cryptocurrency billionaire based in the Bahamas who is tracked by Forbes and others for co-founding one of the largest crypto exchanges in the world. I'm Sam Bankman-Fried. I'm the CEO and co-founder of FTX. Bankman Freed's Political Action Committee Protect Our Future has funded Flynn's run with more than $10 million, helping flood the 6th District with Flynn's campaign ads. Portland State University political science professor Richard Klukas says it's unprecedented. After the census, Oregon added a new district southwest of Portland that includes the state capital of Salem. It's very surprising to see that type of money fly into Oregon in a race like this. It is also unusual for a candidate with little to no political experience to raise this much money. Flynn, a Yale University grad and a government contractor who moved back to his home state during the pandemic, says his expertise is in pandemic preparedness and artificial intelligence, issues that happen to be of interest to Bankman Freed. But some are not buying it. One of Flynn's opponents and tech engineer Matt West filed a complaint with the Federal Election Commission claiming Flynn and Bankman-Fried are colluding. Flynn and his team reject that and say the two have never met. 
But still, another candidate in that primary, Cody Reynolds, says the race could inspire billionaires everywhere to buy local candidates. If Carrot Flynn wins this race, democracy is dead. Reynolds, who also dabbled in cryptocurrency as an investor, is self-funding his own campaign to the tune of $2.7 million. This is the test case, right? This is the, can I buy my friend a seat and have them vote for me? In another twist, the powerful House Majority PAC, which is backed by top Democrats such as Speaker Nancy Pelosi, gave Flynn nearly a million dollars. That fueled more questions. Here's Professor Klukas. Usually the party organizations and groups related to party organizations don't become involved in primaries. Yet here all of a sudden, one is involved in primaries and giving to a candidate who is not well known. As a result, six of Flynn's opponents held a press conference to slam the move. That included the frontrunner in the race, Oregon State Representative Andrea Salinas. It felt like a slap in the face. The campaign arm for the Congressional Hispanic Caucus, the Building Our Leadership Diversity PAC, or Bold PAC, has backed Salinas. Oregon 6 claims the state's largest Hispanic population at around 21 percent. And the Latina lawmaker has drawn more than 90 endorsements. But some polling shows her leading Flynn by only four points. And last month, a dark money group PAC called Justice Unites Us, claiming to support Asian American and Pacific Islander voters, sent Flynn, who is not Asian, even more money. Selena says it is insulting when you consider the diversity of the new district and its candidates. There are four women in this race, and three of whom are women of color. And all three women of color have years of experience serving in office locally. Two were aides to U.S. senators, including Ron Wyden. That ex-Wyden staffer is former County Commissioner Loretta Smith. She is vying to be Oregon's first African-American member of Congress. Smith says the flood of money for Flynn plays into an old narrative. White men, they are put up on a pedestal with less experience, less education, less elected experience, experience working for a member of Congress. And all he has to do is to be a white man and he can attract money. The fight over Oregon's new congressional seat has become home to the national debate over outside influence on local politics. And it could prove to be a model to how future elections are won. Claudia Grisales, NPR News, Washington. Parents across the U.S. are continuing to scramble to find baby formula, which is going through a dramatic shortage. Some stores are limiting how much customers can buy at one time. NPR's Joe Hernandez reports on what that's been like for one family. For the past three months, Chloe Banks and her husband have been struggling to buy formula for their 11-month-old son, Teddy. It's incredibly stressful. It's endless where you don't know where, you know, your next can of formula is going to come from. Teddy has a milk and soy protein allergy and needs a special kind of formula. Regular formulas are running low across the U.S., and so are specialized formulas for babies, including those with allergies or metabolic disorders. Banks says, as a parent, it's difficult not to be able to get her son what he needs. Everything that we want to do is to take the best care of our children, and we're between a rock and a hard place because it's not like we have other sources. The retail analytics firm Data Assembly collects information from thousands of stores across the country on how much baby formula they have out of stock. The first week of this month, it was at 43 percent. That's a lot higher than it was in November when it was just 11 percent. It is a real crisis and in many 
cases potentially life-threatening. Dr. Benjamin Gold is a pediatric gastroenterologist in Atlanta. Gold himself is working with manufacturers to help families get the formulas they need. Actually, my nurse is still on the phone with them right now um, to ship the uh, formula to this, this family. One reason for the shortage is a recall of some baby formula made by Abbott earlier this year for possible bacterial contamination. Also, manufacturers haven't been able to get key ingredients because of supply chain disruptions. The White House says the Food and Drug Administration is working with manufacturers to help ramp up baby formula production. For now, parents like Banks and her husband continue to spend hours looking for formula her son can tolerate, and she knows she's not the only one. And then you have, of course, in the back of your mind, there are other families who are doing the same thing. Are you taking this from a child who needs it as well? Try not to be too greedy, but then if you're not greedy, you don't have enough for your child. Um, It's just a really vicious cycle. A website run by the American Academy of Pediatrics recommends contacting your pediatrician if you can't find your child's formula. Joe Hernandez, NPR News. In 1939, the Soviet Union invaded Finland. Now Russia's war on Ukraine has Finland rushing to join NATO after decades of disinterest. Come back to Morning Edition tomorrow for a look back at the Winter War and how it's influencing the Finns' sudden interest in joining the world's biggest military alliance. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Drug overdose deaths caused by illicit fentanyl have been on the rise. That story is still to come on WBUR. Big night at the Garden tonight. Celtics host the Milwaukee Bucks in Game 5 of the NBA Eastern Conference semifinals. Red Sox take on the Atlanta Braves once again in Atlanta. Sox snap their five-game losing streak with last night's win. Nathan Navaldi pitches tonight. It's 4-3. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Tapas 529 in Melrose for sharing and sampling Spanish and Mediterranean taste sensations. Full bar and live music Fridays, tapas529.com. Semester Off, an education and wellness program in Wellesley, helping college students and high school grads get back on track. Summer semester starts June 6th, semesteroff.com. And the Museum of Russian Icons, now on display, Images of Atheism, the Soviet Assault on Religion. More at museumofrussianicons.org. For more than 40 years, millions of tons of uranium ore were mined from Navajo land to make nuclear weapons. Thousands of workers were exposed to deadly radiation, and those workers are about to lose funding to cover their health costs. Are you people waiting for us all to die so the problem goes away? The toxic legacy of uranium mining on Navajo land, that's on point tonight at 7 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Live from NPR News, I'm Janine Herbst. President Biden is blaming Russia's war in Ukraine for a spike in food prices around the world, as well as a scarcity of food, especially grains, that's left many parts of the world vulnerable to starvation. Because of what the Russians are doing in the Black Sea, Putin has warships, battleships, preventing the access to Ukrainian ports to get this, this, this grain out, to get this wheat out. The brutal war launched on Ukrainian soil has prevented Ukrainian farmers from planting next year's crop and next year's harvest. 
At a farm in Illinois today, Biden says his administration will support American farmers as they try to fill the supply shortage. This is the White House struggles to address inflation on many fronts, from food to gasoline. The Labor Department says inflation in April was up 8.3 percent year over year, a slight drop from March's 8.5 percent reading, but still higher than economists were expecting. The White House has nominated seven lawyers to fill posts on the U.S. Sentencing Commission. NPR's Kerry Johnson reports the bipartisan panel sets important policies for people convicted of crimes. The Sentencing Commission has been hamstrung since 2019 because it lacked enough members to do its work. Now the Biden White House is proposing a diverse slate of nominees, including Mississippi Judge Carlton Reeves, who'd be the first black person to serve as chairman. Criminal justice advocates have been pressing the administration to fill these vacancies for more than a year. The Sentencing Commission works to reduce disparities in punishment for defendants, and judges take its work into account in every criminal case. The nominees require confirmation by the U.S. Senate. Carrie Johnson, NPR News, Washington. Wall Street lower by the closing bell. The Dow down 326 points. The Nasdaq down 373. The S&P 500 down 65. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. It's a tough time for many Massachusetts biotech companies. Industry-wide, the total stock market value of small and medium biotech companies is about half what it was a year ago. As WBUR's Yasmin Ammer reports, investors are tightening their purse strings after they poured a record amount of money into biotech in the past couple of years. Short term, some of the more than 1,700 biotech companies in greater Boston are likely to close or merge. It's not clear how many. But Joe Boncori, the CEO of the Massachusetts Biotech Council, isn't worried. He says market ebbs and flows are common in the industry. You know, you'll see people shifting from company to company. You know, they're going to find work in Massachusetts. It's not a concern. If anything, we had an employee shortage over the last three years. And now with some companies closing, you know, you'll see an evolution of People are going to other companies. Boncori says plans to build more lab space and hire thousands of people across the Commonwealth are still ongoing. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Yasmin Amr. The state's Department of Transportation is getting nearly as much toll money as it was before the pandemic as driving returns to more normal patterns. State officials say roadway tolls have brought in more than $306 million so far this fiscal year. That's nearly $70 million more than in the same period the year before. A public school district in Western Mass is reinstating a mask mandate. The Daily Hampshire Gazette reports Northampton is making the change because COVID cases among students and staff more than doubled last week. The town joins Boston and Chelsea, which still have school mask mandates in place. Within the last week, school districts in Arlington, Belmont, and Cambridge have recommended mask wearing in classes. It's 434. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Foundation. Believing that everyone benefits when we come together to build more equitable communities, the Boston Foundation is embracing its role as a civic leader to seize this moment. TBF is joining with its many partners to build a greater Boston that works for everyone. Learn more at tbf.org slash civic leadership. Cloudy overnight tonight, not too chilly, just about 50 degrees. Tomorrow should be cloudy again, milder climbing to the upper 60s. Friday, we should see at least partly sunny skies, temperatures breaking into the low 70s. 59 degrees now in Boston. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Procter & Gamble, maker of a Lyme probiotic 
a daily supplement to support digestive health containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at AlignProbiotics.com. And from C3AI, C3AI software enables organizations to use artificial intelligence at enterprise scale, solving previously unsolvable problems. C3AI is enterprise AI. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Adrian Florido. And I'm Elsa Chang. Overdose deaths in the U.S. rose to a record high in 2021. That is according to a preliminary estimate from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. And the vast majority of these deaths were caused by illegally made fentanyl. NPR health correspondent Ritu Chatterjee joins us now to tell us more about this new data. Hi, Ritu. Hey, Elsa. So how many people died from overdoses last year? We're talking about over 107,000 people, and that was the highest number of overdose deaths that the U.S. has seen in any given year in the entire two decades that this drug epidemic has been going Mm. on for. And here's uh, Farida Ahmad. She's a researcher at the CDC's National Center for Health Statistics. Over 80,000 of those deaths involved opioids, which was about a 15% increase. And the vast majority of those opioid-related deaths were caused by fentanyl. Right, and we're talking about illicit fentanyl, right? That's right. But the difference is that, uh, you know, several years ago, fentanyl was primarily combined with um, or um, with heroin. But mm-hmm. since the last three years, other illicit drugs, cocaine, methamphetamine, even illegally made prescription drugs like oxycodone are being contaminated with fentanyl. Uh, Dr. Nora Volkov directs the National Institute on Drug Abuse, and she says that this has put many more people at risk of overdosing. Now, people that have using cocaine are at risk of overdosing from fentanyl. Similarly, people taking methamphetamine are at risk for overdosing. And very tragically, people that may be using illicit prescriptions, and I say very tragically because in many instances, these may be people that uh, take just one pill. And die if that pill's contaminated. Volkov says a lot of people using these drugs don't even suspect that the drugs may contain fentanyl. And, you know, you can't tell by looking at a drug that it uh, it is contaminated. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of people taking these drugs for various reasons. Uh, Here's Volkov again. People take illicit prescription drugs because they have pain, they cannot sleep properly, they are anxious and they don't get them from their doctors, so they go to the illicit market. So it's affecting a bigger swath of drug users who aren't necessarily aware of their risks. Well, what's being done to curb this pattern? So, you know, the Biden administration has made investments in expanding access to harm reduction measures like naloxone, which reverses overdoses, clean needles and fentanyl test strips to test if a drug is contaminated. And just last month, the administration announced its plans to address this crisis with harm reduction being a key component. Uh, Sheila Vakaria is with uh, the Drug Policy Alliance, and she says she's heartened by this federal investment. Harm reduction has historically been incredibly underfunded and has been relegated to state and local funding or private funding. But she also adds that the existing efforts clearly aren't enough. We're seeing um, a rise in deaths. And she says that access to harm reduction measures still remains spotty. To date, we only have two legally operating above-ground harm reduction overdose prevention centers in the country, and we need to see these in communities across the country because people are also dying of overdose 
alone and not having a place to go or not having people around them to be able to adequately respond. So, you know, she says, despite all these great investments, there's clearly uh, more that needs to be done to make these kinds of things available to more people to save lives. Absolutely. That is NPR's Ritu Chatterjee. Thank you so much, Ritu. Thanks, Elsa. My pleasure. In New Mexico, the largest wildfire in the U.S. continues to grow rapidly in the mountains east of Santa Fe. Nearly 2,000 firefighters are trying to stop the blaze from moving closer to mountain resort towns like Taos. Tens of thousands of people are under evacuation orders. From member station KUNM, Alice Fordham reports many have questions about how this fire started. The adventure camp at Glorietta, just outside Santa Fe, is usually full of kids biking in the mountains or swimming in the lake. Right now, though, its dining room is full of evacuees from the worst fire anyone here has ever seen. This is unimaginable. It is beyond belief. It's uh, something that I've never seen before. It's, it's basically a monster. Ray Sanchez is a teacher who reluctantly left his family home in Mora County about a 90-minute drive north of here. So our home is directly in the path. The wind is blowing it toward my house. Relentless winds have been pushing the fire through drought-stricken forests for weeks now. Sanchez's brother is a firefighter up in the mountains. He's told him about tunnels of fire, like nothing he's ever seen. Very terrifying. It was being driven by the winds, like 60-mile-an-hour winds. This fire is now known as the Calf Canyon Hermit's Peak Fire, after two fires combined. The cause of the Calf Canyon Fire is under investigation, but the Hermit's Peak Fire... Our prescribed burn from last Wednesday was the cause of the Hermit's Peak Fire. With that said, um, we take full responsibility, and with a heavy heart, we are really sorry for what happened. That's Santa Fe National Forest Ranger Stephen Romero at an online meeting, apologizing for letting a prescribed burn get out of control. They're supposed to be small, controlled fires that reduce vegetation to prevent big ones in future. Romero said that the weather had forecast favorable conditions, but high winds had blown up unexpectedly. Ray Sanchez, the evacuee, says high winds are very common in New Mexico in spring, and he wouldn't have had a fire in his own house then. Simply because we don't want embers coming out of our chimney and lighting our neighbor's house on fire. And many people whose homes and livelihoods are now at risk are critical of the prescribed burn. Sofia Romero also evacuated Warner County with her children. I am not totally against prescribed burns. Being in the forest my whole life, we do need to clean them out for these reasons. But she says it's always windy in April, and the forests are like tinder. They know New Mexico weather, especially northern New Mexico weather. Um, we had a very dry winter. So she's dismayed. She wants answers. I want. We want to know why. Like, what made you decide that was okay? The Forest Service is conducting a review. New Mexican elected officials have also criticized the decision to burn. Forest management experts, like University of New Mexico professor Matthew Herto, say it would be a mistake to ban prescribed burns entirely. I'm confident it's an essential tool. He says since the beginning of the 1900s, forest management focused on fire suppression, which led to a buildup of flammable dead plant material. The idea is reintroducing a process uh, in an ecologically appropriate manner to help restore the ecosystem. And fire serves a really important role in these uh, forests. He worries political and popular anger about this burn could make managers too afraid to try to restore healthy fires. If any time that somebody makes a mistake or a prescribed fire gets away for any number of reasons, 
if we as society demand that heads roll for that, we're going to select for fire managers that do not light fires, and we're going to select for land management culture that avoids risk. He thinks in a changed climate, it is harder to burn safely, but that without prescribed burns, the risk from tinderbox forests will only grow. For NPR News, I'm Alice Fordham in Santa Fe. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. SpaceX has big plans to launch rockets near the border town of Brownsville, Texas. But some residents say housing costs are the only thing skyrocketing. Texas Public Radio's Gage Davila reports. The city of Brownsville has changed its motto from on the border by the sea to on the border by the sea and beyond. In downtown, there are space-themed murals including one of an astronaut. It's on the side of a hot dog stand owned by Rebecca Rodriguez. When I decided to get this business, I thought, you know what, I need to incorporate that into the business because I know that it's going to be hopping like the young kids say. SpaceX is Brownsville's largest private employer and wants to expand their site on a popular undeveloped stretch of coastline just outside the city. That has upset some residents, along with rising house prices and rents. Christopher Basaldu, a Native American scholar from Brownsville, moved apartments as rent prices soared across the city last year. His previous landlord sold the building, and now he's paying more for a smaller place. What SpaceX is doing is taking advantage of the long history of economic exploitation of human beings in this valley. Basaldu is a member of the Carrizo Comicrudo tribe of Texas. His ancestral lands stretch far along the Rio Grande River, separating Texas and Mexico, and onto the coast. Basaldu believes the city has fallen victim to SpaceX seeking short-term monetary gain. He sees parallels between his housing ordeal and the plight of his ancestors who were forced off this land by colonists. That whole structure of inequality that makes life so difficult, that history is not lost on me. A Texas A&M University study found housing prices increased nearly 30% in the last few years. Half of Brownsville's available houses have been sold since January 2019. Median family income for Brownsville residents is around $40,000. That's less than two-thirds of the national average. But the city's leaders are more focused on the economic promise SpaceX pitched. Brownsville Mayor Trey Mendez declined interview requests, but said in his 2021 State of the City address that SpaceX is a priority. We're actively building a new space ecosystem in Brownsville to attract more space-related companies. New space is projected to be a trillion-dollar industry by 2030, and Brownsville will position itself as a city that welcomes its industry and fosters innovation. The housing problem worsened when Elon Musk told his Twitter followers in 2021 to move to the area for SpaceX jobs. We all referred to that. That was kind of the day one. Nick Mitchell Bennett heads the affordable housing organization Come Dream, Come Build. It's gone from zero miles an hour to, you know, we're, we're breakneck speed right now. But recently, Musk cast doubt over SpaceX's future in Brownsville. Musk's company is waiting for the Federal Aviation Administration to decide whether a lengthy environmental review is needed to expand. When asked about this in February, Musk said they may move the Mars launches across the Gulf if the review is ordered. So we would have to shift out priorities to Cape Kennedy. 
Musk's threat to shift their Starship plans to Florida would be a big departure from his initial promise of launching the first person to Mars from Brownsville. SpaceX did not respond to interview requests. One artist is channeling frustration with Musk and housing costs. Josue Ramirez's exhibit currently shows at a nearby college, and he hopes to illustrate the downsides of SpaceX's presence in Brownsville. Arts and culture really is a shortcut to understanding policy because that's ultimately what shapes it. People feel a different kind of way after they see these portraits, and then maybe that will change into a public opinion once enough people see it. Ramirez uses bandit signs found throughout the Rio Grande Valley for his pieces. These are often crudely drawn signs with phrases like, We buy houses. He paints silhouette portraits on some of them. One is of Musk, titled Silhouette of a Gentrifier. For NPR News, I'm Gage Davila in Brownsville, Texas. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And coming up on WBUR, the story of the high schooler in India who has sued her high school for banning the head covering known as a hijab. The forecast is coming up next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Gene Brooks Landscapes, dedicated to designing, constructing, and maintaining imaginative gardens for 32 years in greater Boston. Photos at genebrookslandscapes.com. And the Worcester Art Museum with Us, Them, We, Race, Ethnicity, Identity. Diverse perspectives by over 40 contemporary artists. Now on view, worcesterart.org. Partly cloudy tonight, falling to about 50. Tomorrow is still cloudy, but much milder. 69 degrees could hit 72 on Friday. Chance to hear some live music tomorrow night at 7 o'clock. WBR's arts and culture team hosts Sound On Concert Series at City Space with a performance from indie jazz band Really From. Get tickets at WBUR.org events. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Stanhope Framers, Back Bay and Somerville celebrating 50 years of handmade museum-quality frames through sustainable practices. StanhopeFramers.com And the Huntington's Common Ground Revisited, adapted by Kirsten Greenwich, directed by Melia Ben-Susan. This world premiere play brings Boston's history to life in the 1960s and 70s, culminating in three families' experiences in court-mandated busing. Starts May 27th at the Huntington Calderwood BCA, HuntingtonTheater.org. Americans really eat a weird set of foods. And some of those foods contribute to climate change. But our choices can make a difference. What we found with that one single substitution, it dropped that person's dietary carbon footprint by 48%. WBUR's new newsletter, Cooked, can help you help the planet from your kitchen table, whether you're omnivore, vegan, or somewhere in between. To sign up, go to WBUR.org cooked. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Adrian Florido. India turns 75 in August. The country's economy has grown in leaps and bounds since the end of British colonial rule. And India's identity has also changed. In recent years, voters have elected a Hindu nationalist government. It's been whittling away at the secularism written into India's constitution. From southern India, NPR's Lauren Freyer reports on what this means for India's biggest minority, Muslims, and the surprising role that some teenage girls are playing. We're at the end of the dirt road here, taking our shoes off, going inside this house. She's no silent. Our sister will talk it. We've come to a village on India's steamy Malabar coast to meet a soft-spoken 16-year-old. My name is Aisha Shifa. What is your favorite subject in school? Commerce. 
commerce. <laughs> Aisha wants to be an accountant when she grows up, but her dreams are on hold because of something that happened at school this year. Back in February, all the parents of Muslim students were called into a meeting and told their daughters could no longer wear headscarves in class. We shocked because they never said us, do not wear the hijab. Aisha's aunt, Malika, who goes by one name, says the principal told them it was part of a new dress code, imposed after lots of Muslim girls returned to in-person classes after COVID in headscarves which they hadn't worn before. Aisha has actually worn a hijab for years. She's from a religious family. I want to wear my hijab and get an education, she says. I don't want to have to choose. So she went to school the next day, as usual, in her navy blue headscarf. Several other girls did the same, and someone recorded video of what happened next. The girls stood at the gate of their school, pleading to be let in. Their principal refused. Video of the commotion went viral, igniting protests across India. Some in defense of the girls, but some also from Hindu extremists denouncing Muslims. Authorities had to shut schools to prevent violence. And Aisha's whole state, which is governed by Prime Minister Narendra Modi's Hindu nationalists, decided to ban headscarves and any religious garb in all public school classrooms. So Aisha hasn't been to school since February. These are your books? Ah, yes, business studies. This is accountancy. Accounting? Decimal fraction to binary conversion. She's trying to study at home instead, but she's also hired a lawyer to take her fight to wear her hijab in the classroom to India's Supreme Court. We shocked. She has came in the news. She has came in the TV. So Soft-spoken Aisha is now one of several petitioners at India's highest court. Judges are expected to rule soon on the constitutionality of Muslim headscarves in all of India's public schools. Now, the timing of this case makes some people nervous. Hindu nationalism is surging in India. Hate crime against Muslims is on the rise. And there are questions about the independence of the judiciary. Bells ring at a Krishna temple in Aisha's hometown. It's a famous Hindu pilgrimage site. But this town is now more famous for this headscarf battle. These Muslim girls are creating unnecessary drama, says a Hindu worshipper named Reshma Shetty. She says she thinks they've been coaxed by radical Muslim groups. It's an allegation you hear often even from some Muslims themselves. Small girls know. Actually, 16, 17, they're not that mature to understand what all political games are going in around. Yasin, who also goes by one name, is a local Muslim lawyer and activist. He says this all began late last year, when Muslim girls attended a women's march organized by Modi's Hindu nationalists. A Muslim group didn't like that, and it approached the girls. It encouraged them to celebrate their Muslim identity instead by wearing headscarves when they went back to school. And the girls became activists and suddenly had a social media presence almost overnight, Yassine recalls. I went to their uh, Twitter accounts and seen that uh, same day all Twitter accounts opened. Six girls, all Twitter accounts, same day opened. I observed that. Uh, I was just smelled something, something bad. He thinks this headscarf fight has been orchestrated by the Campus Front of India, or CFI. 
It's the student wing of what the Indian government considers an Islamist extremist group. Now, Ayesha denies involvement with them, but I visited their offices and met local leader Syed Sarfraz. He says some of the other girls approached him, not the other way around. But he doesn't deny coaching them. CFI is directly, we are guiding them totally in legal way, in democratically. He says these girls are the perfect victims to help his group show the world what Hindu nationalists are doing here. They are banning Muslim vendors and they are calling to Hindu community to not to buy anything from Muslim shops. This is Islamophobia, which is growing. We have to uphold our constitutional rights. We need strong resistance. Resistance, he says, to stop the erosion of religious freedom for India's 200 million Muslims. People like Mohammed Shazi, he works at a local perfume shop and accuses outside goons, Hindu and Muslim extremists, of hijacking Aisha's case. They are creating a negative statements about us. What can we do? He just wants to keep his head down and his shop open. The Muslim community here feels ever more embattled. Ghazala Wahib, who wrote a book about anti-Muslim prejudice in India, says there's a sad irony here. In fighting for their rights, with help from a political group and from social media, these girls are losing out on their education. The victim is actually your own. Because these women, they are marked absent. All of them are being marked absent. And female education is so important to their community's development and equality. For now, Ayesha is home in her family's kitchen, learning how to bake a cake, but still dreaming of being an accountant. She says she worries constantly about when or even if she'll be allowed to go back to school with her hijab. Do you worry if they have to spend six months out of school the danger is they never go back. I'm not worried about that. She will go back and she will study and she will do the exam and she will achieve the dream, sir. She will do it. That's India's Supreme Court may decide that very soon. Lauren Freyer, NPR News in Udipi, Mangalore, India. The abortion rights debate is not happening in the U.S. alone. Laws have been changing in parts of Europe and in Latin America. A look at the politics of abortion around the world. On today's episode of NPR's Daily News Podcast, consider this. You are listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Workday, committed to helping organizations adapt to change using real-time data to uncover insights, stay decision-ready, and prepare for whatever's next. The finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. And from Lafayette Imports, bringing Plymouth Gin to the U.S. from England's southwest coast. Plymouth Gin is distilled using a blend of seven botanicals, including juniper berry, coriander seed, and citrus peel. Plymouth Gin, since 1793. And from Fisher Investments, wealth management from dedicated advisors that tailor portfolios to each client's unique goals. More at fisherinvestments.com. Investing in securities involves the risk of loss. 
Should have overcast skies this evening and tonight as well. Overnight lows about 50. Tomorrow starts an upward trend for temperatures. They could come close to 70 degrees. Lots of clouds tomorrow. Friday, partly sunny. Highs just about 72 degrees. And then over the weekend, partly sunny could reach 80 degrees. Holding steady at 59 degrees now in Boston at 459. WBUR supporters include Boston Lyric Opera presenting Grammy Award-winning Terrence Blanchard's Champion, an opera in jazz, Cutler Majestic Theater, May 18th through 22nd, blo.org. I'm WBUR City Space Director Amy McDonald, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston. 92.7 WBUA Tisbury and 89.1 WBUH Booster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Today, Senate Democrats tried and failed to pass a bill to protect abortion access nationwide. Tens of millions of women are watching what will happen to the rights they've relied on for decades. What happened today? 51 senators opposed the move. 49 supported it. It's Wednesday, May 11th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Also ahead, home prices have risen dramatically in some cities over the past year, leading to fears of a new housing bubble. Whatever it is that's happening, you know, all of the locals being pushed up and people not being able to afford homes, it just can't keep happening. Meanwhile, Massachusetts regulators take up the question of whether to restrict a controversial practice in a hot real estate market, that of waiving complete home inspections. And a study of aging mice may help provide a new approach to treating Alzheimer's disease. It's 501 News Headlines and Wall Street numbers are coming up. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. A bill that would legalize abortion throughout the U.S. has failed to move forward in the U.S. Senate. Vice President Kamala Harris reading the tally. On this vote, the yeas are 49, the nays are 51. Three-fifths of the senators duly chosen and sworn not having voted in the affirmative. The motion is not agreed to. The measure failed to get the 60 votes needed to proceed. Senate Democrats had pushed for the vote, knowing it was unlikely to pass, but wanting to get Republicans on the record. West Virginia Democrat Joe Manchin joined Republicans to block the measure. The vote was prompted by the leak of a draft opinion that shows the U.S. Supreme Court poised to overturn the nearly 50-year-old Roe v. Wade decision. President Biden issued a statement saying the failure to act comes at a time when women's constitutional rights are under unprecedented attack, and it runs counter to the will of the majority of the American people. In the Kiev suburb of Bucha, two-thirds of the population remains displaced six weeks after Ukrainian troops liberated the city. NPR's Jason Bobian reports from Bucha that residents and officials are trying to reopen the battered city. The mayor, Anatoly Fedoruk, says more than a thousand buildings were damaged or destroyed in the battles for Bucha. He tells NPR the city's attempting to clean up bombed-out shopping malls, repair streets, and reconnect utility lines. It's really hard to rebuild in a wartime. At the first place, we need to finish the war, and then we will be able to go on a full-scale rebuilding in the city. Bucha lost most of its municipal fleet, including garbage trucks and construction equipment during the Russian occupation. The mayor says other cities have lent them vehicles, but he understands that the main focus of the nation remains on the fighting elsewhere in the country. Jason Bobian, NPR News, Bucha.
A New York judge has provisionally lifted a contempt of court ruling imposed on former President Donald Trump. NPR's Andrea Bernstein has more on the latest development in the state's civil probe into the business dealings of the Trump organization. Judge Arthur Ngoron ordered last month that Trump be fined $10,000 per day for each day he refused to respond to the court's ruling about turning over documents. Trump's attorneys have maintained they've complied with the document requests, but the fines have accumulated to $110,000, and the judge says Trump can avoid further fines if he provides additional sworn statements and details about how his company kept records by May 20th. Trump still has to pay the $110,000 fine, though it can be held in escrow while he appeals. The case stems from a New York Attorney General investigation into whether Trump's company defrauded tax authorities and lenders about the value of Trump properties. Trump and his company have denied wrongdoing. Andrea Bernstein, NPR News, New York. Stocks fell again on Wall Street amid new government inflation figures showing some slowing, but still with inflation at near historic highs. The Dow dropped 326 points. The Nasdaq was down 373 points today. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Members of Massachusetts' all-Democratic congressional delegation are criticizing the U.S. Senate's failure this afternoon to pass the Women's Health Protection Act. The bill would codify abortion rights into law. Senator Elizabeth Warren called the failure for it to pass disgraceful. Senator Ed Markey said the move by Senate Republicans to block the measure is unacceptable and dangerous. The proposal needed 60 votes to overcome a Republican filibuster. It got 51 votes. Massachusetts home inspectors had a hot debate today over whether it's legal to perform shortcut so-called walk-and-talk home inspections instead of full home inspections. Some buyers have been asking for the shortcuts in the midst of a bidding contest for properties. WBR's Laura Craigle has more. Inspectors urge the state board that oversees their industry to take a stand on a controversial practice in Boston's heated real estate market. Inspectors are being asked to do rushed consultations that skip over parts of a home. Critics say they leave consumers at risk and do not follow the law. Here's Ron Rocha, an inspector and board member. You can call it a consultation. I think you're a home inspector and you should do everything by the regulations and the rules. The board agreed to have its legal counsel draft a policy statement to clarify the law. For now, inspectors are on their own to interpret the rules. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Laura Craigle. The nation's largest Muslim civil rights and advocacy organization says its Massachusetts chapter received 163 requests for legal assistance last year. The Council on American-Islamic Relations says that is down from an average of 240 in prior years. The group also says calls about hate crimes have decreased each year from 2017 to 2021. However, it says when Massachusetts schools returned to in-person classes after the onset of the pandemic, complaints of bullying against Muslim students spiked in the state. In the forecast, lots of clouds around overnight tonight. Temperatures just about 50 degrees. And for tomorrow, should be overcast and milder, reaching the upper 60s. For Friday, the sunshine should break through the clouds. Temperatures should break into the low 70s, could reach 80 on Saturday, maybe Sunday as well. 59 degrees in Boston at 5.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. 
From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Adrian Florido. And I'm Elsa Chang. Today, Senate Democrats tried and failed to advance a bill to require equal access to abortion nationwide. All but one of the Senate's 50 Democrats voted for it. That one Democrat was West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin, who sided with all the Republicans in opposition to the bill. Democrats were responding to a recently leaked Supreme Court draft opinion that would overturn Roe v. Wade and would ultimately allow states to ban or restrict abortion access. Now, the final court decision is expected next month. And joining us now is NPR congressional correspondent Susan Davis. Hey, Sue. Hey, Elsa. Okay, I mean, it was a given that Democrats didn't have enough votes to advance an abortion bill in the Senate. So what was the point of today's vote? You know, really the only thing Democrats can do here is try to create political pressure against Republicans going into the election. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer said as much this morning on the Senate floor. Tens of millions of women are watching what will happen to the rights they've relied on for decades. And all of us will have to answer for this vote for the rest of our time in public office. Democrats remain confident they have public opinion on their side. Most Americans in polls say they do believe women should have some level of access to abortion procedures, but they're essentially powerless to do anything to stop the court if they rule to overturn Roe, despite controlling Congress and the White House. The realities of the 50-50 Senate have not changed. Democrats don't have the votes to change the Senate filibuster rules to make it easier to pass legislation. Mm -hmm. And today's vote also proved they don't even have a simple majority of support to pass the bill, even if they did. Yeah. I mean, what about Manchin? I mean, hasn't he said that he does support codifying Roe v. Wade into federal law? But he voted against the bill today. Why? He also voted against a similar bill back in February. Manchin supports some level of basic abortion access, but he's always been more of a socially conservative Democrat. And he's more supportive of restrictions around abortions. Think of things like mandatory waiting periods or requiring ultrasounds before an abortion can be performed. Mm -hmm. He told reporters he feared that this bill would go too far, that it would supersede states that have restrictions like that in place. And he didn't support that. He wanted more of a pared down bill. Well, what about two Republican women senators? I'm talking about Susan Collins of Maine and Lisa Murkowski of Alaska. I mean, they both openly support Roe v. Wade, but they voted against the bill today. How did they explain that? They shared a lot of those same concerns as Manchin, but they've also introduced competing legislation that would also codify Roe. It just wouldn't go as far as the Democrats' bill to protect abortion rights. It would also do more to protect people who have religious or moral opposition to abortion. And it is drawing some level of Democratic interest. Collins is talking to senators like Manchin. Uh, Another senator, Tim Kaine, is a Democrat from Virginia who has also had, at least previously, some more conservative views around abortion access, certainly compared to more liberal Democrats. But at the same time, the same problem still exists. It's unlikely that they could get any additional Republicans on board for their Republican bill, and highly unlikely they can get a critical mass of Democrats on board for it either. Yeah, so if that is the case, where does this abortion debate on Capitol Hill go? I mean, in Congress, it's frankly going nowhere, at least not before the election. One of the big questions in the midterms is how much of this could impact have on voters. I mean, Democrats want to believe that it's going to bring voters to the polls to vote for them, but it's just not clear yet how voters are going to rank abortion and deciding how they're going to vote. And, you know, Republicans remain heavily favored to win control of the House. And if that happens, there will be zero chance of any legislation to protect abortion rights in the next Congress. That is NPR congressional correspondent Susan Davis. Thank you, Sue. You're welcome. 
Despite years of federal initiatives, high-speed Internet remains out of reach for millions of rural Americans. Most big broadband companies say it's just not profitable enough to connect remote places. But as David Condos of the Kansas News Service reports, some smaller local broadband providers are finding ways to get rural customers connected in places that telecom giants have left behind. Matt Stout is a farmer and rancher in southwest Kansas and lives off a dirt road, one mile from his nearest neighbor. His best-case scenarios for internet speeds have been just a few megabits per second, way slower than what most people in cities would even consider internet. Living out in the country is nice for some things, and then you pay for it in other areas. It's estimated that 42 million Americans still don't have high-speed internet. And in places like western Kansas, the reason is obvious. It's hard and expensive to wire a small number of people spread out in the country. With fiber optic cable costing tens of thousands of dollars per mile, the chances of AT&T or Comcast showing up at Stout's door are slim to none. Yeah, the door's kind of heavy. But then one day last year, Stout saw a white pole sticking out of his yard. A locally owned rural Kansas broadband company called IdeaTech had buried a fiber line along his dirt road. Right here, just uh, all the way to town, right down this road ditch. My house just happened to be right on the sweet spot. So today, after eight years of spotty slow connection, Stout is getting gigabit speeds that rival any city in the U.S. Inside Stout's house, IdeaTech's John Osborne is running a thin yellow wire from the wall to a box behind a TV. This is just one of the dozens of fiber installations he's done recently around here, making him a popular guy. I get handshakes and hugs and... It's nice to be able to walk in town after doing this and, and see your customer, you know, and they're, and they're just all smiles. IdeaTech's focus on southwest Kansas is an example of the growing number of American small towns, farms, and ranches finally joining the broadband age, thanks to local internet providers taking a stake in the rural communities they call home. So how are these small local companies able to solve a problem that telecom giants haven't? While government subsidies help, the biggest difference is that the local companies view it as their mission to connect their neighbors, even if it's not a big moneymaker. In a lot of ways, what they're doing mirrors the rural telephone co-ops that connected farm towns to the outside world a century ago. In fact, some of the local broadband companies in western Kansas started out doing just that. Catherine Moyer heads up Pioneer Communications, which was founded by local farmers as a telephone co-op in 1950. It now has about 10,000 internet customers, and three out of four of them have fiber. She says the fact that Pioneer is small and local is exactly what gives it the flexibility to spend money on what its communities need, rather than what will turn the most profit. While we need to make money to you know, continue to exist, we don't answer to Wall Street, we don't answer to shareholders, you know, we have member owners. University of Virginia professor Christopher Alley studies rural broadband policy. He says that community-focused mission makes local companies the best hope for wiring rural America, and that the big national players have failed to deliver on their rural broadband promises, even after getting billions in federal funding. For locally-owned companies, seeing their communities succeed over the long term is a big part of their return on investment. So if they can at least break even spending $20,000 on a mile of fiber, they'll do it. If you think about it as an investment in the community versus how much time are you going to need to recoup your return on investment, there's two very different ways of looking at that $20,000. So now we're just going to pull up something on the internet and see how quick it Back at Matt Stout's farm, the big moment is finally here. No buffering. The wires are hooked up, the Wi-Fi's on, and a quick speed test shows that his internet is now running more than 150 times faster than it was this morning. With today's reliance on emails and Zoom, calls and all that, it'll be 
Nothing short of life-changing, really. And with billions in new federal broadband subsidies on the way, just how much goes to local companies rather than national ones could decide how many more rural Americans get to experience a day like this in the near future. For NPR News, I'm David Condos in Ford County, Kansas. Support for All Tech Considered comes from Paycom, a tool for HR and payroll. Designed for productivity, allowing employees to perform their HR and payroll tasks in a single software. Learn more at paycom.com radio. And from C3AI. C3AI software enables organizations to use artificial intelligence at enterprise scale, solving previously unsolvable problems. C3AI is enterprise AI. Gas prices just hit another record high just as the summer driving season is about to take off. And that is frustrating travelers already paying a lot more for everything because of high inflation. NPR's Brittany Cronin reports. At a gas station in Harlem yesterday, this is what I kept hearing. Gas prices are ridiculous. That's Siren Henderson filling up his tank. He sees me with the mic and calls me over. We blaming it on the Ukraine, but we, we trying to survive out here. Everything costs more these days. Food, rent, and especially gasoline. The national average for a gallon of gas reached $4.40 today, according to AAA, setting another record not adjusted for inflation. Patrick DeHaan from Gas Buddy says it comes down to how much oil prices have surged since Russia's invasion of Ukraine. As more countries stop buying oil from Russia, that means that these buyers have to find oil elsewhere. Russia is one of the world's largest oil exporters, and the European Union is considering joining the U.S. and U.K. in banning Russian oil imports. President Biden is taking steps to try to bring down gas prices, including releasing oil from the country's emergency reserves. But DeHaan says those actions just aren't enough. It doesn't even come close to the total production ability that Russia has of 10 million barrels, and that's why it's a losing battle. There's no way to offset Russia's oil production capability. And it's not just the price of oil driving up gas prices. There's also a bottleneck at the refineries that turn crude oil into gasoline. They just can't keep up with demand. Not to mention, a number of refineries in North America have shut down in the last few years. We're talking about a loss of uh, refining capacity, and that has crippled the ability for refineries to meet demand that has resurged as the economy continues to gain momentum post-COVID. And gas prices are surging just as we're heading into summer, when more people take to the road. Back at the gas station in Harlem, Kim Boder says she's cutting back on her driving. I would never prioritize gas over food. <laughs> we gonna get on public transportation with that. As for summer vacation, she loves driving her kids to the south. But those trips are on hold for now. Not Probably not this summer or next summer if they don't get it together with these gas prices. Boater might be right to brace herself with little relief for gas prices in sight. Brittany Cronin, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up on WBUR, how the spinal fluid of young animals and humans can improve the memory of aging mice. We'll look at the implications for Alzheimer's research coming up on WBUR. Wall Street stocks ended downward. The Dow fell 1%, 327 points to close at 31,834. S&P dropped 1.65% to finish at 39.35. The Nasdaq sank 3 and 2 tenths percent to close at 11,300. 
It's 518. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Walnut Hill School for the Arts, championing creativity, arts and academics for grades 9 to 12. Apply for 2022-23, walnuthillarts.org. And Cityside Subaru on Route 60 in Belmont, where the Love Spring event is underway, featuring the all-wheel drive Subaru Crosstrek, citysidesubaru.com. There's an influx of new funding sparking growth in the local cybersecurity industry. A report from the consulting firm Value Creation Labs finds investors pumped $2.7 billion into cybersecurity businesses based in the state last year. That's more than five times the amount from the year before. The report says Greater Boston is primed for more growth because of the high concentration of companies, universities, and investors. Business news comes up at 6.30. The forecast is next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet, committed to delivering Internet service over a gig, designed to power your devices while fitting your budget. More at Xfinity.com gig. And Boston Ballet's Mindscape, featuring new works by choreographers William Forsyth and Yorma Ello. Live May 5th to 15th, bostonballet.org. Clouds should increase overnight tonight. Temperatures just about 50. Tomorrow, look for overcast skies. Should be milder, climbing to the upper 60s. Friday, the sun should break through the clouds. Temperatures should break into the low 70s. It is 59 degrees now in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com. And from C3AI. C3AI software enables organizations to use artificial intelligence at enterprise scale, solving previously unsolvable problems. C3AI is enterprise AI. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Adrian Florido. There's another spy scandal involving Pegasus, the Israeli spyware that's been used to hack phones around the world, this time in Spain, where it was found on the phone of Prime Minister Pedro Sanchez. There are signs that this could be linked to a long-standing tension with Morocco over a disputed territory in North Africa. Here to talk us through this tangled web of espionage and geopolitics is Jose Bautista. He's an investigative journalist based in Madrid. Uh, Jose, welcome. Hi, my pleasure. Let's start with the spying. Why are there suspicions that Morocco could have been involved in installing this spyware on the Spanish prime minister's cell phone? Last year, a network of journalists called Forbidden Stories, they published a great investigation showing that Morocco spied more than 10,000 devices and phones using Pegasus. 200 uh, numbers, 200 phones, were Spanish phones, in, you know, including politicians, journalists, human rights activists. Why would Morocco want to spy on the government of Spain? Well, first of all, in May and June of last year, when the Spanish government was being spied with Pegasus, Spain and Morocco were having its worst diplomatic crisis in recent history. The worst. Mm. Why? Because Morocco is in war in this moment against Front Polisario, which is a group fighting for the self-determination of Western Sahara, a former Spanish colony in Africa. And uh, this territory is now under control of Morocco. 
Okay, so so we need some background here. Uh, Western Sahara is a disputed territory bordering southern Morocco. Uh, it's largely controlled by Morocco, but separatists there have been fighting for independence for decades. So why is there tension between Morocco and Spain about what happens in Western Sahara? Well, actually, by the end of 2020, December, President Donald Trump uh, announced it on Twitter that the U.S. was recognizing Morocco's sovereignty on Western Sahara. It was the first time the U.S. has done this step. And you know the, what we call the butterfly effect? Mm-hmm. A little decision by President Donald Trump just some days before leaving the White House has changed completely the diplomatic uh, relations in this part of the world. So somehow Morocco now feels that it's it's momentum to get control uh, over the territory to abandon the negotiations. Spain had historically taken a, a pretty neutral stance on the independence of Western Sahara from Morocco, but it recently announced its support for a plan by Morocco to mm-hmm. give Western Sahara some autonomy on domestic issues. Are there any details about what motivated this change? Well, yes. Actually, the Spanish government was desperate to have a, to bring back its good relation with Morocco. And the price Spain or the Spanish government was uh, going to pay, well, you can see, the Spain is now supporting the position of Morocco instead of uh, supporting the neutral position that historically, not only Spain, but also other countries, have defended. Why is the fate of Western Sahara so important to Spain and other countries? Western Sahara was the last Spanish colony. And it was more than a colony, it became a province. Hmm. So the both populations, the Spanish and Sahrawi people, they are very close because of historical ties and also because of the, how close those societies are. Has the Biden administration taken a stance on this issue or shifted its stance since? Donald Trump decided to recognize Morocco's sovereignty on Western Sahara in exchange of Morocco recognizing Israel. Um, So Biden, uh, at the beginning, when he came to the White House, uh, some people thought that he would reverse Trump's decision, but he didn't. Well, now we have this spyware twist in the story. Does it have the potential to shake up this agreement between Morocco and Spain on Western Sahara's future? I, I think so. We still have to see if the government or any official source can confirm the origin of this spy infection with Pegasus, but it's going to be problematic for sure. That was Madrid-based investigative journalist Jose Bautista. Jose, thanks for joining us. Thanks. Next up, scientists are trying a new approach to reversing memory loss. NPR's John Hamilton reports on a study of forgetful mice treated with a substance found in spinal fluid. Mice, like people, tend to develop memory problems as they age. Tony Weiss-Corey of Stanford University says when mice are young, they will remember a painful experience for weeks. When they're old, they keep forgetting about this. A few days later, they can't remember that they were in a bad environment. Weiss-Corey thought one reason might involve the fluid that bathes the brain and spinal cord. After all, brain cells depend on this fluid, and its composition changes dramatically as an animal gets older. So Weiss-Corey had a researcher named Tal Iram try an experiment. She collected spinal fluid from young mice 
and then infuse it into the brains of old mice. The idea was simple. We were hoping that by mimicking a young environment, that the brain would respond to that with better function. And it worked. The old mice began to remember as well as young ones. But why? Genetic tests showed that something in spinal fluid was rejuvenating specialized cells in the hippocampus, an area that's important to memory. These cells make the myelin sheath that insulates wiring in the brain. More tests revealed that the cells were responding to a growth factor called FGF17, which dwindles with age. So Weisskori's team injected some FGF17 directly into the brains of old mice. When we put the factor in the mice, they actually are better able to perform a memory task where they have to remember something that happened to them. Weisskori says FGF17 is probably just one of many substances involved in brain aging. But the study, which appears in the journal Nature, suggests that restoring just one of these substances can make a difference. Weisskori says an aging brain with memory loss is a bit like an old car that has broken down. But similar to repairing a car, you don't necessarily have to fix all parts to make it still run. You have to find the key parts. Weisskori says the approach could offer a new way to tackle problems like Alzheimer's disease. So far, he says, most treatments have focused on eliminating the disease's hallmarks, an accumulation of toxic plaques and tangles in the brain. What we're seeing is that there's much more going on and that aging seems to produce a lot of abnormalities that contribute to the cognitive decline and dementia. And many of these abnormalities involve substances found in spinal fluid. Maria Lettinen of Harvard University is excited, but not entirely surprised by the result. Her lab has been studying the role of cerebrospinal fluid, or CSF, in young mouse brains. We found that the CSF delivers these important health and growth promoting factors, and essentially in mouse models can modulate brain growth. Lettinen, who co-authored a piece accompanying the new study, says scientists are beginning to identify those factors. What's been lacking so far is the next step you know, of testing whether these CSF factors can confer benefits to adult functions. Like memory. Lettinen says the new study suggests the answer to that question is yes. John Hamilton, NPR News. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Clouds should be on the increase overnight tonight. Temperatures should make it to just about 50 degrees overnight. Then for tomorrow, cloudy and milder, climbing to the upper 60s. For Friday, the sunshine should break through the clouds. We could see temperatures reaching the low 70s. And then over the weekend, partly sunny skies both Saturday and Sunday should be dry and warm, almost hot, with highs reaching the low 80s. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Foundation. Believing that everyone benefits when we come together to build more equitable communities, the Boston Foundation is embracing its role as a civic leader to seize this moment. TBF is joining with its many partners to build a greater Boston that works for everyone. Learn more at tbf.org slash civic leadership. And Margulies Peruzzi, providing insight on the practical steps needed to prepare for a safe return to the workplace. Information and reports on mparchitectsboston.com. 
I'm Tiziana Deering. Tomorrow on Radio Boston, we welcome Governor Charlie Baker to Studio Two. About seven months left in the corner office, but big issues on the table, from cutting taxes to driver's licenses for undocumented immigrants. And maybe a bit about his legacy. One-on-one with Charlie Baker on Radio Boston tomorrow at 11, only on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Live from NPR News, I'm Janine Herbst. A bill to codify abortion rights under federal law failed to advance in the Senate today. Democrats proposed the Women's Health Protection Act after a Supreme Court draft opinion was leaked showing that Roe v. Wade could be overturned soon. But a majority of Republicans, like Senator Chuck Grassley, want to see that five-decade-old rule of law come to an end. The Women's Health Protection Act is an extreme piece of legislation that completely disregards human life. Democrat Patty Murray says overturning Roe will set women back. My daughter, my granddaughters will have fewer rights than I did. I truly never thought I would say that and it breaks my heart. Democrats pressed for this vote to get senators on the record on what will be one of the galvanizing issues of the November midterms. And it was almost along party lines, although Democrat Joe Manchin sided with Republicans in blocking the law. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin says aid to a Ukraine will help defend that country without drawing NATO into a longer war. And Paris Quill Lawrence reports. In a budget hearing, Secretary Austin defended the type and amount of aid being sent to Ukraine. In working with our allies, uh, we're talking, uh, talking to the Ukrainians routinely, and we're trying to provide them exactly what they think they need. Austin said the U.S. is trying to do that without provoking escalation by the Russian side. Lawmakers also brought up inflation here at home as it relates to the nation's military men and women. The Pentagon chief said the rising cost of housing is a concern. The strain caused by rising rent costs are really kind of creating some adverse effects for our our lower-ranking enlisted, and we, we remain cited on this. Austin asked that Congress pass the proposed 2023 budget to improve military housing. Quill Lawrence, NPR News. Wall Street lower by the closing bell, the Dow down 326. You're listening to NPR News. A coroner in Indiana has confirmed the cause of death of the former high-ranking jail official in Alabama was suicide. Vicki White is suspected of helping an inmate escape and sparking a wild week-and-a-half search. Ann Kenda with Troy Public Radio has more. Following an autopsy, the Vandenberg County Coroner's Office finds the cause of death as suicide by a single gunshot. Investigators say former guard Vicki White and inmate Casey White, who's not related, had multiple weapons in their vehicle when U.S. Marshals ran the car into a ditch after a brief pursuit. Vicki White was taken to a nearby hospital with a gunshot injury and died a short time later. Casey White is back in custody in Alabama. The distinctive six foot nine inmate was already serving 75 years for a crime spree in 2015 and awaiting trial on murder charges. For NPR News, I'm Ann Kenda. Hyundai is recalling more than 215,000 mid-sized cars in the U.S., many for a second time because fuel hoses can leak in the engine department and cause fires. The recall covers certain 2013 and 2014 Sonata sedans, many of which were recalled for the same problem in 2020. The Korean automaker says a low-pressure fuel hose can crack over time. I'm Janine Herbst, and you're listening to NPR News. 
This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts Senator Ed Markey is criticizing Senate Republicans for their filibuster this afternoon that blocked a bill that would have helped protect abortion access. Democrats were not able to get enough votes to overcome the filibuster. Markey calls today's move by Republicans unacceptable and dangerous. Speaking on the Senate floor before the vote, Markey said a potential Supreme Court decision to roll back abortion rights would be a, quote, war on people of color and the poor. Overturning Roe v. Wade will undermine the health, safety, and freedom of millions of Americans and will create horrific pain and hardship for people across the nation, especially those without the means or resources to travel to states where abortion will remain safe and legal. Today's vote at the Capitol came after a draft opinion last week, uh, leaked last week, indicated the Supreme Court's likely to overturn Roe v. Wade. Boston is facing rising costs for its fleet of city-owned vehicles. That says the cost of gas and diesel have hit record highs in Massachusetts. WBR's Vanessa Ochovio reports. The city says it's paying more than double what it did last year for diesel and 60 percent more for gasoline. But Department of Public Works Director of Fleet Management Bill Coughlin says it helps that the city's been transitioning its vehicles to electric and hybrid models. We, the city, trying to be as clean as possible, are going electric on as many pieces of equipment as possible. He says the city now has 39 active electric vehicles in its fleet, with another 11 coming online soon. And the city is replacing big diesel equipment like street sweepers with electric. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Vanessa Ochevillo. The Boston pop season begins a week from tomorrow, and if you head to Symphony Hall, you won't have to wear a face mask. The Boston Symphony Orchestra has released new guidelines that say face coverings are recommended but not required. Patrons will have to prove they are fully vaccinated against COVID-19 or show a negative COVID test result. It's 536. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Native Plant Trust. Enjoy 21 species of trillium in bloom, plus special tours and programs now through Sunday at Garden in the Woods in Framingham. More at nativeplanttrust.org. And Merrimack Repertory Theater, presenting master storyteller and all things considered's Kevin Kling in Best Summer Ever, now through May 22nd, mrt.org. Should have mostly cloudy skies overnight tonight. Temperatures right about 50. Then for tomorrow, an upward march starts. There could be about 70 degrees tops with lots of clouds. Friday, partly sunny. Highs about 72. Then over the weekend, could reach 80. 59 degrees now in Boston. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Easy Cater, committed to solving food for today's workplaces, from sales meetings to employee lunches. Online ordering from more than 80,000 restaurants. Corporate food solutions at easycater.com. And from Zoom, used by half a million businesses. Platform for phone, chat, workspaces, events, apps, and video, enabling real-time collaboration for teams around the globe. Zoom, how the world connects. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Adrian Florido. For many indigenous women in the United States, getting reproductive care, including abortions, has never been easy. So how much harder will that get for Native women if the Supreme Court overturns Roe v. Wade and states move ahead with plans to ban abortion? To talk about this, I'm joined now by Polly Dinetclaw. She's a national political correspondent for Indian Country Today. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. What have indigenous women told you about how they're feeling about the possibility of Roe being 
overturned? There has been a myriad of responses, but I do want to say that Indigenous folks that I talked to in New Mexico uh, with the Indigenous Women Rising were not surprised that this was the direction that Roe v. Wade would go, especially with the Supreme Court. They had very little hope, whereas I talked to folks in Oklahoma who said that they had really hoped that this wouldn't happen, especially for states like Oklahoma, where they have already passed these bans on abortion. And then I also talked to another organizer, again, in New Mexico, uh, who was just incredibly disheartened, who has three daughters, and having to tell her daughters, you know, that this is the possibility of it being overturned um, was something that she was really um, disheartened to have to tell her daughters about. You have reported on barriers that Native women have faced in getting abortion in the United States uh, for decades. What are some of the biggest? So... When it comes to reproductive rights in indigenous community, body sovereignty has always been an issue since colonization. But within the last uh, few decades, the biggest issues that have come up are around the Hyde Amendment, which bans the use of federal dollars to fund any type of abortion care services, except for in three specific cases, rape, incest, and the life of the mother is in danger. And so Indian Health Services, which is the primary facility for indigenous people and uses federal dollars, often has their hands tied when it comes to providing abortion care because IHS facilities are not equipped to offer that type of care even under those three circumstances. And also, I do want to mention that Indian Health Services also did many forced or coerced sterilization of indigenous women. And this was a practice that went on from the 1960s to around the mid-1970s. The statistic is that one in four indigenous women during that time frame had gotten forced or coerced sterilization through IHS facilities. And so now with with the U.S. Supreme Court seeming to be on the verge of overturning Roe versus Wade, uh, do you expect that access to abortions for native women will, will get even harder? It will definitely get harder, especially in Texas and Oklahoma. And we have already seen huge influxes of Indigenous women. Um, This is from Indigenous Women Rising and Abortion Fund, who noted that after the abortion ban in Texas, Indigenous women were having to travel to New Mexico in order to access that care. And one of the things that they were worried about is that now Indigenous women from Oklahoma will have to travel to states like New Mexico in order to receive that care. There are financial barriers that exist when it comes to having to make that journey to New Mexico from Oklahoma. Sometimes child care is an issue. Sometimes they're also caring for elders. And so that just creates another host of issues. Polly Dinetkla is with Indian Country Today. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Here's something a lot of people are wondering. Are we in another housing bubble? During the pandemic, home prices shot up more than 30% nationally. And now some economists think prices in certain cities could fall. NPR's Chris Arnold reports. Chelsea Fitzgerald Dole and her husband Kevin live in Nashville, Tennessee, and they really like it there. I fell in love with the city. I met so many incredible people. The food scene is awesome. The music scene is unparalleled. It's a really fun 
city to be in. But what's not so fun is that the couple bought a very small two-bedroom condo a few years ago. And during the pandemic, they've been crammed in there working at home remotely. Kevin's a musician on the side and his drum sets in the middle of the living space. This is an electric drum set, but it is a full-size professional quality straight up. Oh drum yeah, set. look at that. That is a no joke, serious big drum set. Yes. <laughs> I have recently invested in a great pair of noise-canceling headphones that has been super helpful. Okay, so you get the idea. They need more space. But the couple does not make a ton of money, and they have a lot of student loan debt. So they're planning to move away from this city that they love because they just can't afford a bigger house here. Everything around us has just exploded. Nashville is one of a bunch of formerly affordable cities that during the pandemic have seen remote workers and retirees move there from higher cost places like New York and California. Companies such as TikTok and Oracle are opening up offices there, too. That's creating new jobs. And all of that has been pushing up prices. Mark Zandi is chief economist of Moody's Analytics. Nashville house prices were up through March year over year. It's now over 30 percent. So Nashville is like raging on fire, you know, very, very strong house price growth. It's not just Nashville, of course. Prices all over the country have been rising way faster than normal. And we saw that happen 15 years ago before the bubble burst, sparking the worst crash and recession in generations. So what's going to happen this time around? I believe that it is a bubble. I just don't know when it's going to burst. This can't last forever. Whatever it is that's happening, you know, all of the locals being pushed out of Nashville and people not being able to afford homes. You mean prices can't keep rising like they have been? Yeah. yeah. Just about all economists agree on that last point. Home prices have to level off, at least grow more slowly. Too many people just can't afford to buy now, especially with rising interest rates. And some economists, like Mark Zandi, actually think that prices could fall, at least in the most juiced up markets like Nashville, Boise, Phoenix, Miami. There's a lot of them. Yeah, I expect prices to come down. If you told me two years from now, prices are 5, 10, 15 percent below where they are today, where they're peaking, I say that sounds about right to me. He says, though, to keep in mind, prices are up 30 percent just in the past year in some of these places. So that wouldn't be such a huge pullback. I don't expect a collapse in house prices like we did back in the crash for two fundamental reasons. One is supply. There is a shortage of homes that are available. And he says new federal rules have put an end to the reckless mortgage lending that helped cause the last crash. For their part, Chelsea Fitzgerald Dole and her husband Kevin are planning to leave Nashville. They're going to work remotely and move four hours away to a part of Kentucky near Cincinnati. Kevin has family there, and they can get a three-bedroom home, they say, for about half the price, about $250,000. It's definitely more challenging for me, I think, because I don't have any friends where we're moving to. And moving to northern Kentucky, that's going to be a new different experience. On the upside, though, they are looking for a house with a well-insulated basement. So Kevin's drum set will not be in the living room. Chris Arnold, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
This is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Home inspectors are sparring over a hot-button practice that has surged in greater Boston's frenzied real estate market. It's when home buyers in bidding contests waive full inspections. Instead, some buyers choose to rely on shortcuts called walkthroughs or consultations. The controversial practice generated intense debate today at a meeting of the Massachusetts Board that oversees home inspectors. WBR's Laura Craigle has the story. At the board's virtual meetings, the usual fare is routine, approving licenses. But this was no ordinary meeting. The discussion went to the very heart of what inspectors are paid to do, examine homes to protect consumers from nasty surprises. Some inspectors called out the practice of abbreviated home reviews, saying they believe they're flat out illegal. Here's Stephen Verbeek of Talon Home Inspection in Revere. When the call comes in, it's basically, hey, Steve, The seller's allowing us 45-minute walkthrough. Can you help me out? For him, the answer is no, he says. But other inspectors, including some at the meeting, are doing them. Verbeek said he asked his lawyer whether it was okay to provide these consultations instead of full inspections that can take a few hours. Well, he spent four or five days on it and came back and said, Steve, are you joking me with this? This is not only a no, this is a hard no. What everyone seems to agree on is that a legal inspection in Massachusetts has to result in a written report for the consumer. Short walk-on talks through a home don't come with a report, as WBUR reported in an investigation this week. So the question is, are they legal? Board member Liz Martin suggested that they're not actually inspections, so they fall outside the law. She's concerned that if inspectors don't do these brief reviews, people with less experience will. Real estate agents, anxious to move sales forward, are going to encourage or advise even their clients to waive home inspections to make their offers look appealing is the line. So if home inspectors don't do consultations, who will? Plumbers? Electricians? Handymen? Not only are consumers left unprotected with many inspections, critics say, but inspectors may be too. Some said they'd been advised by lawyers that their liability insurance would not cover them if they were sued after a consultation. At the urging of inspectors on both sides of the issue, the board directed its legal counsel to draft a policy statement to clarify the issue for inspectors and for the public. The board's next meeting is June 15th. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Laura Craigle. Coming up next on WBUR, as all things considered, the Biden administration is phasing out incandescent light bulbs. Advice on longer-lasting and more energy-efficient options is coming up. Join On Point host Meghna Chakrabarty on Friday, May 13th, for a city space conversation on the future of artificial intelligence and robots. You can get free tickets at WBUR.org slash events. This event is sponsored by Vertex. In the forecast, plenty cloudy overnight tonight, falling to just about 50 degrees. Tomorrow, still cloudy, a lot milder, inching to 69 degrees tomorrow. Then Friday, partly sunny, about 72. Then a summer-like weekend coming up could hit 80 degrees. They'll be dancing on the Rose Kennedy Greenway tonight through the weekend. It's the start of a free five-day live music and outdoor dance festival called Let's Dance Boston. Tonight and for the next four nights and on Sunday afternoon, professional instructors will teach different dance styles. It's sponsored by the Celebrity Series of Boston. It all begins tonight at 7 at Rose Wharf Plaza. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Stanhill Framers, Back Bay, and Somerville, celebrating 50 years of museum-quality custom frames for individuals, artists, and businesses. Stanhopeframers.com. 
Even with Roe currently being on the books, the people who suffer are people who look like me, people who are black and brown, people who have other marginalized identities. What the draft decision said to me is, I don't actually care how it's going to change the way in which they're able to live their lives and create their lives. I don't care about that. I'm Sabrina Tavernisi. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Tonight at 8 on WBUR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Adrian Florido. And I'm Elsa Chang. The Biden administration is phasing out the use of old-fashioned incandescent light bulbs. Once the new rules are in place, the Energy Department claims Americans will save nearly $3 billion per year on their utility bills. There will still be plenty of light bulbs to choose from at your hardware store, though. So which light bulb is the best? Well, a couple years ago, NPR's Jeff Brady tried to answer that question for NPR's Life Kit podcast. I've spent a lot of time in light bulb aisles recently because I've been reporting on changes to energy efficiency regulations. And one thing I've noticed is a lot of confused people holding an old light bulb and trying to find a new one just like it. I'm looking for a bulb to go inside of my refrigerator. John Pinnock is at a Home Depot in suburban Philadelphia. This is a 40 watt, this is a 40 watt. The bulb seems to be the same. Only thing is, I don't want dimmable. I'm not going to be dimming inside the refrigerator, so... Turns out that means it's able to be dimmed, not that it has to be. This confusion is the result of a revolution in the lighting industry. The old energy-hogging incandescent light bulb is going away, and new LED or light-emitting diode bulbs are taking over. There are really good reasons to switch to LEDs. Later we'll learn how using them can help you sleep better. While they are a bit more expensive, they last a lot longer, so you'll change bulbs less often. And they use a fraction of the energy old bulbs do. That's important for addressing climate change. The Energy Department estimates switching to LED bulbs across the country saves the amount of electricity produced by 44 large power plants. Interior designer Aaron Shakur says that's good for your budget, too. Here's the deal. You're going to save so much money on your electric bill by transitioning from regular incandescents to LED bulbs. So that's the first, like, no-brainer. Erin owns Shakur Interiors in Chicago, and she knows how to use light to enhance your space. She often talks about the role of light fixtures like this. Like that badass hat that you put on right before you walk out the door, or that beautiful piece of statement jewelry that you're like, oh, this just made my outfit, yes. I'm ready to go, and I'm I'm just, I'm rocking this look. (laughs) Erin says LEDs allow her to be more creative because they're small. You no longer need a big, ugly light bulb poking up from a metal base. She says manufacturers are coming up with all kinds of interesting new fixtures. And assuming you have the cash, firms like hers can even design a custom fixture with LEDs. And then you've got this amazing statement piece that is, you know, calling... You know, what's that that milkshake song? Calling all the boys to the yard, so to speak. <laughs> so here's our first takeaway. The LED revolution has made the light bulb aisle more complicated. But there are big benefits to switching to LED lighting in your house. You can save energy and money, and you can be more creative. So now, assuming you're sold on LEDs, Aaron says it's really important to think about how you want a lighted space to feel. What happens in that room? 
that can affect what light bulbs or even what light fixtures you buy. When you're sitting on a sofa sectional watching the game, you're not interested in, you know, high glaring lights right on your face, your head, and coming into your sort of view while you're watching the TV. So we would light this footprint within the room one way, usually with dimmable recessed fixtures. But in the kitchen, Aaron says you want to flood the space with light. It's a workspace where it's important to see things clearly. That's our second takeaway. Think about the space you're lighting and choose bulbs and fixtures that complement what happens in that space. Aaron says if you're renting, you can use floor and table lamps. Those can be pretty inexpensive. Once you make those fixture choices or those lamp choices, now you you can easily make a bulb choice. And to do this, we need to learn a few terms, watts, lumens, and kelvin. Watts refer to energy consumed, lumens refer to brightness, and kelvin is the color of the light. First, watts. The old way of picking a light bulb focused on watts. I always thought that was an indication of how bright the bulb is. 100 watts is brighter than 60. But actually, watts refer to the energy the bulb consumes. And since LEDs need less energy to produce the same amount of light, those bulbs have really low wattage numbers. The simple formula and kind of rule of thumb is to multiply that number times five to understand what kind of light output you're going to be getting in a lamp or fixture in the room. If it says 12, you're going to be getting 60 watts of light. But the real measure of light output is lumens. That's the second term you need to know. Many manufacturers still use both watts and lumens. They'll say something like, this is equivalent to a 60-watt incandescent bulb, and that's 800 lumens. You don't need to obsess over any formula for this. Just know that more lumens is brighter and less is dimmer. Another term you may really want to pay attention to is Kelvin. That's a measure for something called color temperature. Now, if you're confused already, don't worry. Aaron was there, too. In the beginning, it confused all of us. <laughs> so designers and architects alike were like, wait, what? <laughs> Aaron says color temperature is a scale. And the most important thing you need to know is on that scale, 2700 Kelvin is about the same color as a typical incandescent bulb. It's got a slightly warm glow to it. And I think, from my perspective, when I see it next to a 3000, oh, the 3000 makes me so happy. So is there sort of like a general guide, like the lower the Kelvin number, it's closer to this color, and the higher the Kelvin number, yes. it's closer to that color? Yes. And so when you start going lower, it gets very gold very yellow, and you can, in almost that Edison bulb, that retro Edison bulb kind of look. So lower number is going to be golder. Mm -hmm. And if you go higher, what are you getting to? You're getting blue. It just gets bluer and bluer and bluer. For our third takeaway, we need to learn a few new terms. Lumens measure light output. The higher the number, the brighter the light. Color temperature is measured in kelvins. Lower numbers look more gold, and higher kelvin numbers look blue. If you're still a little confused, we have all this written out. Search NPR Life Kit and light bulbs. So, we've covered a lot here, but you may still have questions. Erin Shakur suggests skipping the big box do-it-yourself stores for answers. She says go to a lighting store instead. So that's the place to go where you can have someone who just is specializing in lighting, not in 
screwdrivers and lumber and lighting and power tools. <laughs> and I might spend a few more pennies on the bulb or the fixture, but that's all right. That's worth it. It's totally worth it because you're not changing it out um, in three weeks or in three months. And a specialist can help you pick that perfect fixture or bulb that will be the best fit for the space you're trying to light. That was NPR's Jeff Brady reporting for NPR's Life Kit podcast. Thanks for listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from your part-time controller. Your part-time controller is hiring full and part-time accountants to assist nonprofits while working from home and at client offices. More at yourparttimecontroller.com employment. And from Subaru with the 2022 Subaru Crosstrek an SUV with standard symmetrical all-wheel drive, and an available 182-horsepower engine. Love. It's what makes Subaru, Subaru. And from Fisher Investments. Fisher Investments is a fiduciary, which means they always put clients' interests first. Fisher Investments. Clearly different money management. Investing in securities involves the risk of loss. This is 90.9 WBUR. A big night at the Garden tonight. The Celtics will host the Milwaukee Bucks at Game 5 of the NBA Eastern Conference Semifinals. The series is tied at two games apiece. The first team to win four games will advance to the playoffs. Tip-off time tonight is at 7 o'clock. Red Sox are hoping to seal the series tonight with a second win against the Atlanta Braves down in Atlanta. Sox snapped their five-game losing streak with last night's win. Nathan Navaldi pitches tonight, 7.20 start time. This is WBUR. It's 559. I'm Midday Host Jack Lepiars, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston. 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Brewster, and you can listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Inflation was slightly lower in April than the month before, but consumer prices are still rising fast. A gallon of milk used to be $3.75 and now it's $4.90. I mean, everything's gone up. Price hikes are especially hard on low-income households. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, a prominent Palestinian-American journalist was killed in the West Bank and her bosses blame Israeli forces. Israel says it will investigate. And the U.S. has a severe shortage of baby formula. It is a real crisis, and these are what these children need to to live on. A recent baby formula recall is part of the problem, but inflation and supply chain issues are said to be contributing factors. It's 6.01 News Headlines, and the numbers from Wall Street are next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. President Biden is blaming global food shortages and surging food prices on Russia's invasion of Ukraine. NPR's Franco Ordonez reports Biden is in Illinois today telling U.S. farmers they can help fill the void. The Russian war in Ukraine has cut off a critical source of wheat, corn, and sunflower oil. It's disrupted global supply chains, causing gas prices to spike, and a shortage of fertilizer to grow new crops. 
President Biden toured an 800-acre family farm in Kankakee, Illinois. In remarks later, he declared that U.S. farmers are the backbone of freedom. We're doing something about it. And our farmers are helping both on both fronts, reducing the food cost of price of food at home and expanding production and feeding the world in need. The White House announced three new initiatives to help U.S. farmers address global food shortages, boosting funding for fertilizer production to $500 million, helping to boost crop production, and increasing technical assistance. Franco Ordonez, NPR News. A major wildfire in New Mexico driven by fierce winds continues to grow. After expanding by more than 50 square miles in a day, the blaze has now charred an area larger than New York City. NPR's Eric Westervelt reports from a site near the Calth Canyon fire, which is on track to become the largest wildfire ever in the state. Winds are gusting up to about 40 miles per hour. But believe it or not, fire crews here say it's better than previous days when gusts would go up to 60 or 70, but they continue to be concerned. This is a red flag day today and tomorrow and potentially into Friday as well, meaning more dangerous winds that are spreading this fire far beyond some of their containment lines. NPR's Eric Westervelt reporting from northern New Mexico. Another stark tally that may have some ties to the ongoing coronavirus pandemic. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention says a record 107,000 Americans died of drug overdoses last year. That's a number that equates to roughly one overdose death every five minutes. The CDC says it esti- its estimate marks a 15 percent increase from the previous record. Inflation remains stubbornly high. That's according to new data out today that shows consumer prices up 8.3 percent from a year ago. NPR's David Gura has more. Annual inflation remains at its highest in nearly 40 years. What's more worrisome for lower-income households is that the cost of basic necessities such as shelter and food continues to go up, even though gasoline prices came down slightly in April. That's proving to be painful for many households. Compounding the pain, according to today's CPI report, wages are not rising fast enough to keep up with inflation. Last week, the Federal Reserve raised interest rates by half a percentage point and signaled more hikes are on the way. And investors are worried those actions to fight inflation could tip the economy into a recession. David Gura, NPR News, New York. The numbers worried Wall Street. The Dow dropped 326 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good evening. I'm Lisa Mullins. Members of the Massachusetts All-Democratic Congressional Delegation are criticizing Senate Republicans who today blocked passage of a bill to codify abortion rights into law. Senator Ed Markey said the rejection of the bill is dangerous. Congresswoman Ayanna Presley said despite today's vote, abortion rights are still in place and people who need abortion care can still seek it. MIT professor and theoretical physicist has been awarded one of the most prestigious and lucrative prizes around the Templeton Prize. Dr. Frank Wilczek is best known for his work investigating the fundamental laws of nature. The $1.3 million award goes to a researcher who uses science to explore humans' place in the universe. Wilczek won the Nobel Prize in physics in 2004. It's a tough time for many of Massachusetts biotech companies. Industry-wide, the total stock market value of small and medium biotech companies is about half of what it was last year. As WBR's Yasmin Amor reports, investors are tightening their purse strings after they poured a record amount of money in biotech in the last couple of years. Short term, some of the more than 1,700 biotech companies in greater Boston are likely to close or merge. It's not clear how many. But Joe Boncori, the CEO of the Massachusetts Biotech Council, isn't worried. He says market ebbs and flows are common in the industry. You know, you'll see people shifting from company to company. You know, they're going to find work in Massachusetts. It's not a concern. 
if anything, we had an employee shortage over the last three years. And now with some companies closing, you know, you'll see an evolution of people going to other companies. Boncori says plans to build more lab space and hire thousands of people across the Commonwealth are still ongoing. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Yasmin Amr. The state's Department of Transportation is getting nearly as much toll money as before the pandemic as driving returns to more normal patterns. State officials say roadway tolls brought in more than $306 million so far this fiscal year. That's nearly $70 million more than the same period the year before. Bidding ends at 7 o'clock tonight on a rare baseball up for sale at a Boston-based auction house. The ball wasn't signed by a player. It was signed by Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. He autographed it for an American collector some three years ago. Here's Bobby Livingston of RR Auction. Kennedy signed baseballs, and then when the Apollo 11 crew returned, they signed baseballs. So it becomes a collectible, and they're signed by many famous people from different genres, we would call it. The portion of the proceeds will go toward war relief efforts in Ukraine. Livingston says the auction house will also donate its buyer's premium and seller's commission to war relief efforts. In the forecast, bright skies in some parts of greater Boston right now should have clouds overnight tonight, lows about 50 degrees. Temperatures tomorrow start to climb 70 degrees, lots of clouds. Then for Friday, partly sunny, highs about 72 degrees. 55 degrees now in Boston at 607. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by EBSCO, working to improve patient outcomes and increase patient engagement with its Clinical Decisions Suite. Learn more at clinicaldecisions.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Adrian Florido. The worst of inflation may be behind us, but what's still ahead is not looking a whole lot better. Price hikes in April were slightly smaller than the month before, But the cost of essentials like food and rent is still climbing at an alarming rate. NPR's Scott Horsley joins us now. Hi, Scott. Hi, Adrian. Scott, annual inflation in April was not quite as high as it was in March. Uh, Tell us more about what we learned today. We learned that we may have crested the peak of inflation, but that it's a long way down to get back to the stable prices we were used to before the pandemic. Uh, consumer prices in April were 8.3% higher than a year ago. That's just a shade below the 8.5% inflation rate the month before. And oddly enough, gasoline accounts for some of that decline. Gas prices, which you remember soared in March after Russia invaded Ukraine, actually dipped a bit last month. Unfortunately, that April reprieve at the gas pump didn't last. Gas prices have since rebounded, and right now they're hitting record highs. Yeah. You've been talking with people who um, have been coping with these high prices. What did they tell you? Yeah, I talked with Holly McLean in Rockland, Maine. She has four kids, and her husband works as a landscaper in the summertime and clears snow in the winter. McLean is really feeling the squeeze of these rising prices, even if last month's inflation rate was a little bit lower. I don't think it's getting any better. A gallon of milk used to be three seventy-five, and now it's four ninety. So, I mean, everything's gone up. McLean's kids go through a lot of milk. Her electric bill has also gone up to almost two hundred dollars a month, and she's noticed that rebound in gasoline prices to four fifty-four a gallon. I can tell you, it cost me over a hundred dollars to fill my tank the other day. We're a six person family and my husband is the only one working so money's tight 
Even if you take out food and energy costs, which tend to go up and down a lot, the price of everything else in April was up more than 6%, three times as high as inflation ought to be. What really worries Tanya Byron in Jacksonville, Florida, is rising rent. It's pretty depressing. I make $42,000 a year and I can barely afford a one-bedroom apartment. Byron spoke to me from her tiny dining room, which also serves as her office as a travel agent. Byron says the apartment's a throwback to another period in American history when inflation was painfully high. It was built in 1976 and they have not updated anything. I've got the original floors and the kitchens and the bathrooms, the original appliances, the original cabinets, the doors and the and the baseboards are painted brown. It's clean, but it's very basic. Apartment rents in Jacksonville have jumped 23% this year. Byron had hoped to buy a condo by now, but with home prices and mortgage rates also soaring, that seems out of reach. I am genuinely worried about the future, not so much even for myself, but for the people that make less money than I do. What is going to happen to the people making 15 and $18 an hour and the single mothers and people who have mouths to feed? It's very scary to me. High inflation is particularly tough on families who don't have a lot of money to start with. Economist Dan Sickle of Wellesley College says those families tend to have less discretionary spending to cut back on. Typically, food and gasoline and housing are a bigger share of total spending for lower-income households than for higher-income households. What's more, Sickle says, lower-income families typically pay more even for the same goods. They might live farther from suburban warehouse stores and have less flexibility about where and when to shop. Lower-income households might have more limitations on transportation, might have less of an ability to stock up when a particular item is on sale, maybe can't get the giant package of toilet paper to stash in a basement. Sickle chaired an advisory committee that says the government should try to include those differences in its cost-of-living calculations. That might mean reporting different inflation rates for people at different levels of income. The committee also suggests the government update how much weight it gives to different prices more frequently to account for the kinds of changes we've seen in consumer behavior during the pandemic. Early on, for example, people started buying more groceries and fewer restaurant meals. It was hoped that inflation might cool off once people's consumption patterns return to normal, but it may just be that inflation migrates from one class of purchases to another. The Federal Reserve has started to crack down on inflation by raising interest rates in an effort to discourage consumption. Chris Waller, who sits on the Fed's Board of Governors, thinks the economy is strong enough to withstand those rate hikes without a big jump in unemployment. But Waller acknowledged there are no guarantees. Inflation is a tax that everybody pays. Unemployment is a tax a fraction of the population pays. So it really is this kind of touchy problem. We're trying to lower the inflation tax on everybody, but there's a small section of the society that may bear the brunt of that by losing their jobs. There's no magical formula in a textbook that tells you how to do it, Waller said this week. You kind of have to take your chances and see where it goes. So, Scott, where do forecasters think inflation will go from here? It may well be that the 8.5% inflation rate we saw in March was the high water mark and that price increases will gradually slow down from here on out. We are starting to see a drop in the price of some goods, like used cars, for example, which were a big driver of inflation last year. 
On the other hand, we're also seeing a jump in the price of some services. Airline tickets, for example, saw a big spike in prices last month. And that might continue this summer as people are traveling more, especially if airline fuel costs stay high. So, Adrian, it looks like the trail down from peak inflation could be long and bumpy. That's NPR's Scott Horsley. Scott, thank you. You're welcome. There are calls for investigation over the killing of a well-known Palestinian-American journalist. Shireen Abu Akleh was shot as she went to report on Israeli troops conducting a raid. The question of who killed Abu Akleh and wounded one of her colleagues is still disputed. But her fame and her ties to the U.S. have put her death in the spotlight. For more, we're joined now by NPR's Daniel Estrin in Tel Aviv. Hi, Daniel. Hi, Elsa. So we'll talk about the circumstances of her death in a moment, but can you just first tell us a little more about who Shireen Abu Akleh was? Yeah, she was a veteran television journalist. She was 51 years old, uh, but she became a journalist when she was in her 20s. She joined Al Jazeera, the Arabic network, in the late 1990s, and she became very well known in the Second Intifada and the, the Palestinian uprising of the early 2000s. She was seen all across the Arabic-speaking world on television. Palestinians especially watched her. And uh, I want to play you a clip from an Al Jazeera video tribute in Arabic where she spoke about why she chose journalism. She says, I chose journalism to be close to people. It might not be easy to change the reality, but at least I could bring their voice to the world. Hmm. Well, I know that you've been personally talking to some of the people who have been impacted by her work, her journalism. What have they been saying about her death? She was really a household name here for Palestinians. I, I ran into one man uh, today in Jerusalem, Izzedine Bukhari. He's in his late 30s. He grew up watching her on television report from very violent scenes in the West Bank. Uh, let's listen. To see her in all these uh, places, uh, very close to death, uh, but I never imagined to wake up to a news such as today that uh, she is the one that they are making a report about her. And she was also really well known by her colleagues, uh, journalists here. One colleague said she was a role model for young women who would even uh, imitate her sign off while they would mm. stand in front of the mirror. Hmm. So what do we know so far about how she was killed? Well, she was killed while covering an Israeli arrest wa a raid in the occupied West Bank in the Janine refugee camp. Um, the context here is that since March, there have been several Palestinian attacks in Israel, killing at least 19 people. There's been a series of Israeli raids, arrest raids in the occupied West Bank that have killed around 30 Palestinians. And Abu Akhla was uh, at the scene of one of those raids early this morning uh, to cover it. We spoke with her colleague, Ali Samudi. Uh, he was with her when they walked past Israeli soldiers. They were wearing flak jackets, clearly marked with the word press in English, uh, with their helmets. He said they walked meters away from the, the soldiers, past the soldiers who let them pass, and then mm -hmm. there were gunshots. He was shot in the back. She was shot in the head. Uh, Al Jazeera says it was an Israeli sniper. A Palestinian autopsy uh, says that a recovered bullet uh, was found. Uh, a doctor I spoke to said it was a kind of bullet that Palestinians don't have pointing at Israel. Now, Israel's position on this has actually evolved. Um, at first, Israel said it was likely Palestinian gunmen were the ones who, who shot her during a firefight with Israeli soldiers. That message shifted a little bit. And the army is now saying it's hard to know who shot her. Israel wants the Palestinians to hand over her body or the bullet or both. 
Well, we mentioned that this story is getting a lot of attention. Can you talk about like how her death is reverberating not only across the region, but beyond right now? Well, it's it's reverberating at the highest levels of power in the United States. Uh, the ambassador to the UN, Linda Thomas-Greenfield, actually met this journalist in November when she was here in the region. And the ambassador said she's uh, deeply saddened. And, and the U.S. Uh, is calling for a swift probe. An Israeli human rights group has even challenged an official Israeli account uh, of, of the firefight that went on there between Palestinian gunmen and Israeli soldiers. Uh, the Israelis pr provided a video. Uh, this Israeli human rights group geolocated it, said it was far away from where the journalist was. But today there were multiple processions with Shirin Abu Akhla's body in multiple cities in the West Bank. Tomorrow the Palestinian Authority president will preside over a ceremony and her funeral will be on Friday. That is NPR's Daniel Estrin in Tel Aviv. Thank you, Daniel. You're welcome. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up on WBUR's All Things Considered, a look behind the scenes of an expensive and bitter Democratic primary. Checking business news, a top executive at Cambridge-based Moderna is out after about a day on the job. The vaccine maker said today it has fired Chief Financial Officer Jorge Gomez. Moderna said it just learned the company Gomez used to work for is investigating allegations of improper financial reporting. Gomez will receive a $700,000 severance package. Moderna's previous CFO will come out of retirement while the company looks for a replacement. Wall Street was down today. The numbers are next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Native Plant Trust. Enjoy 21 species of trillium in bloom, plus special tours and programs now through Sunday at Garden in the Woods in Framingham. More at nativeplanttrust.org. Wall Street stocks were down. The Dow fell 1% or 327 points to close at 31,834. S&P dropped 1.65% to finish at 3,935. The Nasdaq sank 3.2 tenths of a percent to close at 11,364. Details coming up in just about 10 minutes on Marketplace. It's 6.20. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by the Jennifer and Robert Waldron Civic Fund, supporting education, equity, and truth. And Dedham Community Theatre, celebrating independent film, now showing The Duke and Petite Maman, and reopened every day. Visit DedhamCommunityTheatre.com. This is Nina Totenberg. If there's one thing you can't argue with, it's how important this station is, and your old car can make it even better. Turn your car into the programs you love. Just go to WBUR.org. In the forecast, overnight lows about 50 degrees. Uh, temperatures start the march upward tomorrow. It could come close to 70 degrees. Lots of clouds tomorrow. Friday, partly sunny. Highs around 72. Over the weekend, partly sunny skies could potentially reach 80 degrees. 55 degrees now in Boston. This is WBUR. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Adrian Florido. And I'm Elsa Chang. One of the most expensive and bitter Democratic primaries in the country is taking place in a newly drawn district in a blue-leaning pocket of Oregon. The race features party infighting, mysterious ties to cryptocurrency, and a complaint with the Federal Election Commission. 
Next week, voters will pick from a crowded field of nine candidates. They're spending more than $18 million to get into the general election. NPR congressional correspondent Claudia Grisales has more. House Democratic candidate Carrick Flynn is a virtual unknown, drawing millions of dollars in curious political donations. The 35-year-old Oregonian laughs off rumors he was bought by a shadowy puppet master. It's a fun story, right? It's like, oh, here's this like secret thing that's happening. They're buying a congressman. Flynn also laughingly described a recent tweet illustrating him as the Manchurian candidate to the Oregon Bridge podcast. Sam's head on it and it had like my thing on this like thing and like, oh, he's a Manchurian candidate. It's like, that's hilarious. Sam's head in that illustration refers to Sam Bankman-Fried, a 30-year-old cryptocurrency billionaire based in the Bahamas who is tracked by Forbes and others for co-founding one of the largest crypto exchanges in the world. I'm Sam Bankman-Fried. I'm the CEO and co-founder of FTX. Bankman-Fried's Political Action Committee Protect Our Future has funded Flynn's run with more than $10 million, helping flood the 6th District with Flynn's campaign ads. Portland State University political science professor Richard Klukas says it's unprecedented. After the census, Oregon added a new district southwest of Portland that includes the state capital of Salem. It's very surprising to see that type of money fly into Oregon in a race like this. It is also unusual for a candidate with little to no political experience to raise this much money. Flynn, a Yale University grad and a government contractor who moved back to his home state during the pandemic, says his expertise is in pandemic preparedness and artificial intelligence, issues that happen to be of interest to Bankman Freed. But some are not buying it. One of Flynn's opponents and tech engineer Matt West filed a complaint with the Federal Election Commission claiming Flynn and Bankman Freed are colluding. Flynn and his team reject that and say the two have never met. But still, another candidate in that primary, Cody Reynolds, says the race could inspire billionaires everywhere to buy local candidates. If Carrick Flynn wins this race, democracy is dead. Reynolds, who also dabbled in cryptocurrency as an investor, is self-funding his own campaign to the tune of $2.7 million. This is the test case, right? This is the, can I buy my friend a seat and have them vote for me? In another twist, the powerful House Majority PAC, which is backed by top Democrats such as Speaker Nancy Pelosi, gave Flynn nearly a million dollars. That fueled more questions. Here's Professor Klukas. Usually the party organizations and groups related to party organizations don't become involved in primaries. Yet here all of a sudden, one is involved in primaries and giving to a candidate who is not well known. As a result, six of Flynn's opponents held a press conference to slam the move. That included the frontrunner in the race, Oregon State Representative Andrea Salinas. It felt like a slap in the face. The campaign arm for the Congressional Hispanic Caucus, the Building Our Leadership Diversity PAC, or BOLD PAC, has backed Salinas. Oregon 6 claims the state's largest Hispanic population at around 21 percent. And the Latina lawmaker has drawn more than 90 endorsements. But some polling shows her leading Flynn by only four points. And last month, a dark money group PAC called Justice Unites Us, claiming to support Asian American and Pacific Islander voters, sent Flynn, who is not Asian, even more money. Selena says it is insulting when you consider the diversity of the new district 
and its candidates. There are four women in this race and three of whom are women of color. And all three women of color have years of experience serving in office locally. Two were aides to U.S. senators, including Ron Wyden. That ex-Wyden staffer is former County Commissioner Loretta Smith. She is vying to be Oregon's first African-American member of Congress. Smith says the flood of money for Flynn plays into an old narrative. White men, they are put up on a pedestal with less experience, less education, less elected experience, experience working for a member of Congress. And all he has to do is to be a white man and he can attract money. The fight over Oregon's new congressional seat has become home to the national debate over outside influence on local politics. And it could prove to be a model to how future elections are won. Claudia Grisales, NPR News, Washington. Parents across the U.S. are continuing to scramble to find baby formula, which is going through a dramatic shortage. Some stores are limiting how much customers can buy at one time. NPR's Joe Hernandez reports on what that's been like for one family. For the past three months, Chloe Banks and her husband have been struggling to buy formula for their 11-month-old son, Teddy. It's incredibly stressful. It's endless where you don't know where, you know, your next can of formula is going to come from. Teddy has a milk and soy protein allergy and needs a special kind of formula. Regular formulas are running low across the U.S., and so are specialized formulas for babies, including those with allergies or metabolic disorders. Banks says, as a parent, it's difficult not to be able to get her son what he needs. Everything that we want to do is to take the best care of our children, and we're between a rock and a hard place because it's not like we have other sources. The retail analytics firm Data Assembly collects information from thousands of stores across the country on how much baby formula they have out of stock. The first week of this month, it was at 43 percent. That's a lot higher than it was in November when it was just 11 percent. It is a real crisis and in many cases potentially life-threatening. Dr. Benjamin Gold is a pediatric gastroenterologist in Atlanta. Gold himself is working with manufacturers to help families get the formulas they need. Actually, my nurse is still on the phone with them right now um, to ship the uh, formula to this, this family. One reason for the shortage is a recall of some baby formula made by Abbott earlier this year for possible bacterial contamination. Also, manufacturers haven't been able to get key ingredients because of supply chain disruptions. The White House says the Food and Drug Administration is working with manufacturers to help ramp up baby formula production. For now, parents like Banks and her husband continue to spend hours looking for formula her son can tolerate, and she knows she's not the only one. And then you have, of course, in the back of your mind, there are other families who are doing the same thing. Are you taking this from a child who needs it as well? Try not to be too greedy, but then if you're not greedy, you don't have enough for your child. Um, It's just a really vicious cycle. A website run by the American Academy of Pediatrics recommends contacting your pediatrician if you can't find your child's formula. Joe Hernandez, NPR News.
1939, the Soviet Union invaded Finland. Now Russia's war on Ukraine has Finland rushing to join NATO after decades of disinterest. Come back to Morning Edition tomorrow for a look back at the Winter War and how it's influencing the Finns' sudden interest in joining the world's biggest military alliance. This is NPR News. This is WBUR. Pretty nice out there right now in the Boston area. Partial cloudiness tonight, falling to about 50. Tomorrow, still cloudy, a lot milder, inching to 69 degrees. Celtics host the Milwaukee Bucks in Game 5 of the NBA Eastern Conference semifinals tonight. The series is tied at two games apiece. Red Sox are hoping for a second win against the Atlanta Braves. Nathan Navaldi pitches tonight in Atlanta. This is WBUR, 55 degrees at 630. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by The Wilbur, featuring former U.S. Senator and stand-up comedian Al Franken, Saturday, May 14th. Tickets and information at thewilbur.com. Tapas 529 in Melrose. Spanish and Mediterranean small plates and paellas. Dinner Tuesday through Sunday. Lunch and brunch on weekends. Private parties welcome. And Liz Linder Photography, creating portraits and stories for life and work. Pictures talk at lizlinder.com.